Come on. Okay. 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 I think we lost them. But don't we want them to find us? No, we're escaping. But Father Scarface said escaping is for cabronies. And I guess we're just two cabronies on the run. And he's not really our father. He left the door to his quarters open, and there was a poster on the wall that said Scarface with a picture of a guy on it that wasn't him. This guy in the poster looked like a man who acted a little too much. So if Father Scarface isn't the real Scarface, who knows what else he's been lying about for the last 30 years. Uh, just so you know, I'm not 30. And I'm starting to think say hello to my little friend isn't a common greeting. Well, if Father Scarface was a liar, then how come there's parentless kids running around the streets holding sacks of God knows what, dressed as demons and devils, just like he prophesied. Well, they, they seem to be exchanging words for goods, and then they carry around in those sacks. This must be how their economy works. But we don't have sacks. How do we get sacks? You gotta buy our dinner first. What was that? Wordplay. Father always forbid it, now I know why. It's scary out here. I want to go back inside the compound. Well, let's go up to this house here and ask for a nice warm room and unlimited meals like we're used to. And they'll accommodate us without question. Certainly, that's how this world works. Come on. Miss, please, we just escaped from the colony, and now we're on the run from Father Scarface, and we need a place to hide for the next 60 years? Yeah, 60. I think I got that in me. Yeah, 60 years. That's fair. Can we come in? Oh, what nice robes you two are wearing, and you shaved your head just for Halloween? You two must be, hmm, kids who had lice at school? Here, have some candy. The hell is this? Reese's peanut butter cup. This isn't going to hold enough sacrificial wine. It seems to be some sort of treat. A treat-based food. I think we're supposed to... <laughs> What's it like? Yummy, yummy, yummy. The answer was delicious. So delicious that they started a cult around it. A candy cult. And a brutal cult it was. Hey, what did you expect? It's all they knew. When you're raised in a cult, that's the only lifestyle that makes sense to you. Is it nature? Is it nurture? No, it's nougat. One year to the day, they had enough followers to perform the ancient ceremony that they had just made up to summon an interdimensional candy god to be performed only on All Hallows' Eve, when our realm was closest to the candy realm, separated only by a thin layer of cookie crunch. Okay, we have now sacrificed our 100 grand virgin dentists, which were surprisingly easy to find. Now lead them in the final incantation to summon our new chocolate-covered lord into our earthly plane. All you who truly believe, give me a break. Break me off a piece of that candy god. Oh, heavenly Hershey, in the name of Murray and Mars, for the holy trinity of the three musketeers, you've come from the deep recesses of the Milky Way, dark. Holy Snickers, he's got a thousand Twizzlers for hands. And jawbreakers for eyeballs. His hair's cotton candy. His blood cells are Skittles. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am a bit of honey. I am Charleston Cthulhu. Why have you summoned me? Because, my lord, we have the cosmically low blood sugar. Well, eat an orange or something. What am I supposed to do about it? Get him! I'm still hungry. Well, don't look now, but he left the portal to his realm open, and he did come from a dimension of candy. Well, then what are we still doing in this savory dimension? Tread lightly. 
It might be a nightmarish pit of despair, absent of light, where our senses only capture pain and misery with no scope of time. But they have taffy. All right, let's go. Sunshine, lollipops, and green bows, everything that's woo. Is that an interdimensional rift from our world to the world of flesh and bones? Yeah, obviously. Well, what's that coming in? They've got... Hands for Twizzlers. They have eyeballs for jawbreakers. Their cotton candy is hair. Their skittles are blood. Well, it looks like Halloween came early. Wanna eat these delicious cabronis? Yeah, it'll give us cavities. I love living in this opposite candy universe. I love you too. That's not what I said. Sunshine. of the song i don't know what we're singing now i don't know why i was gonna sing that intro uh wooly bully and then go into archie bound the drills hey this is archie bound the drills and uh this is tighten up and (laughs) because all the songs back then were the same song i don't know why you had to shut yourself into a song why do we have to shut ourselves into an intro all right wow that hurt uh everything that is inside my body wow my bones hurt now. Wow, uh, I have osteoporosis. <laughs> wow, I need to go to the doctor. Wow, I guess I should have drank more milk because you've hurt my bones. Hi, uh, welcome hello. to Alley Meekly episode 46. 46, the old, oh my almost God. Jackie Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> what number was Jackie Robinson? 42. 42, yeah. Yeah, well, it's more than Jackie Robinson. We're more than we're Jackie m- Robinson. We're four more than Jackie. We're, we're the biggest thing th- since Jackie Robinson. <laughs> I'll say it. Yeah. We broke so many barriers. So many barriers. Like the curfew laws at CSUN. <laughs> <laughs> like the rule that the janitor staff has about kicking students out. We're not students. They don't know that, though. They never asked for us hey, an ID. We're not supposed to be here in the first place. <laughs> you can't kick us out. <laughs> you can't kick us out if we're not here. You can't get any expelled. I don't go here. I'm having dinner with the dean tomorrow night. <laughs> I own this school. I'm uh, Magnolia Hall. Hello. Um, Hi. We're, welcome to October. Nobody woke me up when September ended. <laughs> I hit the snooze, and I've, I've somehow slept through October yeah, as well. Yeah. This is our Halloween episode, not a creepy episode. Halloween uh-uh, episode. This isn't going to be creepy. It's spooky, but it's not scary. Yeah. It's altogether ooky, yeah. but it is not... Not quite a fright fest. <laughs> there, sorry, there are flies. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, we're going to be talking about cults. Cults, and cults. there were a lot in LA. Yeah. And we're not going to be talking about the big ones, which are, let's name, this Let, is Manson Let's Family. name them. Yeah. Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Mayor Garcetti. Uh, know, the cult of Hollywood. I don't know. I don't know, maybe celluloid. <laughs> I feel like we covered the Manson Family. In and we one. can't do a better job than Karina Longworth did with, uh, you I must think remember we can this, and a 12 episodes. And we, you know, know how to do voices. I'm yeah. so sorry. She's going to hear this and she's not going to be my friend. Yeah, she's going to do some sort of a Gene Harlow voice and loop me. Shut up. <laughs> That's your impersonation of uh, William Powell. It's good, too. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're not doing the Manson family because we told that story. I feel like other than the murders, there's, I mean, there's still a story, but there's I a think lot. we covered. The, yeah, we covered the juicy part, yeah. which is murder. The sweetest juice of all blood but we, scientology we also skipped over we, one that was because the other one I was thinking of, yeah. there's so much already out there about it and also that's like that's almost a whole year's worth of episodes that is gonna be like a two-part episode <laughs> yeah, that we're which we're to not do. gonna do nah, well, yeah. read about Alan i don't want to put down a good organization <laughs> we don't want to ru- ruin a potential sponsorship 
This episode brought to you by Dianetics. <laughs> Feel empty? Well, our pockets do. So Scientology. Let's talk a little bit about why there's cults in LA. East Coast is so old and so embedded in like everything that brought old religions and old ways of thinking. And California is so new. I think a lot of people came to California, first of all, because the weather cured a lot of people. And that has a certain, I, I don't know if people thought that that was some sort of mystical thing or not. And they just didn't think, oh, there's not like they don't have factories everywhere. <laughs> they have this clean air and we're next we to the ocean. We kind of did have factories everywhere though. not in 1920 oh that's true yeah the only factory back then was printing out uh, uh, gilded <laughs> gold uh, the, the only thing that the factories were, were, were producing was flappers <laughs> assembly lines for the chair bug i don't know <laughs> and so people would come to california and they would just i think that the idea of things being new and sort of mystical and the ocean and the air carrying everybody and hollywood and just the 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 ever-present idea of new and there's no like established really even though it was we were started off very protestant i think a lot of people Speak came for yourself i mean i don't know about you but i'm very protestant <laughs> this is a very methodist podcast <laughs> i'm a methodist actor <laughs> which means i don't work on the sabbath <laughs> my idea is uh, my my idea is better. It's um same idea, but better worded. Every other thing we've talked about, like oh, we come to LA because there's no rules or it's newer. You can start movies. You yeah. can start googie architecture. Exactly. You can start hot dogs you can and podcasts. You yeah. can start podcasts. You shouldn't, but you, you can. <laughs> Good, and, yeah. and now you can't stop. <laughs> Going along with that, they also started cults. Yeah, <laughs> you start new religions. You can start new ways of thinking. Yeah, it was just very open uh, and accepting. And this was a kooky town. I don't know how many more times I use the word kooky on this I, episode. I but. feel it's all together ooky. <laughs> <laughs> Fides are back. <laughs> There's a long list of cults that were in LA. I picked two. You picked two. Okay, so before I get into this person, let's just address this. This isn't necessarily a cult, i.e. Jonestown or the Manson family. This is another offshoot of Christianity akin to Mormonism and the like, which many re- people refer to as a cult, but it's recognized and civil enough for it to exist. Well, cult isn't necessarily a bad yeah, thing. Exactly, yeah, exactly. As we've learned. There there are con- <laughs> there are negative connotations for sure. And I, my other one is because a better of example. the two you just named. Yeah, exactly. Mormon. Protestant. <laughs> Protestant. <laughs> well, there's also the cult of personality exactly this person i'm about to talk about is a cult figure in la mm-hmm. she was quite out there it had many people devoutly following her she's like a figurehead of the barrymore it's true barrymore it's a barrymore family uh, <laughs> the figurehead of the barrymore foundation yeah. not lionel not ever whatever her mom's name was it's true it's little gertie <laughs> little gertie and her friend et <laughs> what this woman ran was essentially underneath the cheerleading for god and the theatrics and the megalomania was a healing cult which were popular in la the pre-world war ii era there was a lot of those going around not just in la but all over the place what do you mean healing uh like, a big tent oh, uh, like revival? i serve yeah revival okay. thing. like talking to snakes and whatever that stuff yeah Slytherin, Slytherin. yeah yeah you walk up and you have crutches and, and you're tiny tim and then <laughs> and, yeah, and then voldemort head. comes out yeah and, and voldemort comes out and then he suddenly touches you're walking your again. scar <laughs> and, <laughs> and suddenly you're not a wizard anymore you're not crippled by wizardry anymore <laughs> you're cleansed from that simple <laughs> life this person is sister amy simple mcpherson or as i've been calling her for the last couple weeks simple amy <laughs> amy mcsimple <laughs> old mcsimple <laughs> she had a cult yeah yeah god so a bulk of my research I just want to say a bit yeah, yeah, A bulk of my research comes from uh, two books, Sister Amy, The Life of Amy Simple McPherson by Daniel Mark Epstein and The Vanishing Evangelist by Lately Thomas. Amy Kennedy's story starts in a small town of Ingersoll, Ontario in Canada in October of 1890 on a wee little farm. Her mom, Mildred or Minnie or Ma Kennedy <laughs> claims or perhaps Amy claims that her mother claimed that she prayed to the Lord for a baby girl that might one day be raised to be a preacher since the domestic life denied her mother the right to. So if the Lord 
granted her a daughter, she would devote said daughter to preaching the word of God. So she already gave, before she was even pregnant, a baby to God. Okay, God. so it's a Rosemary's baby. Yeah, yeah, but like the the better of... Like the, uh, it's the opposite. The, the it's, opposite, it's yeah. It's Parsley's baby. This movie ends with an old man saying, Satan is dead, hail God. And, now <laughs> this, and then it's like, no! When it came to the birth, a shaft of light was shown to be from the heavenly above that acknowledged this prayer was recognized and granted Minnie with her gift of a preacher lady. However, in Amy's writing, it states that 18 months had passed before the mom got pregnant, which is a oh, weird okay. timeline, but like she like asked God for a baby. Yeah. Well, there's a time delay. Yeah. There's obviously, he, he lives pretty far away. <laughs> It's like talking to a reporter on CNN. It's it's going to take 18 months <laughs> because he lives on Mars. And you know how you can see a star, but it's already eight years dead because it's so far. It's like that. God is eight years dead. All hail. All hail star. You're off one one right now. I, oh, I shouldn't have said space. That was my mistake. I said space in front of you and you already went on a thing. <laughs> Did you know that? No, well, you know where E.T.'s from. <laughs> Her father was a Methodist farmer and a road engineer and Minnie was a, a Methodist. <laughs> yeah, there are. So, I mean, that's all there was. Hey, he's a Methodist farmer. He doesn't work on Saturdays. <laughs> or whatever I said. <laughs> Go on. Minnie was a last for the Salvation Army. A few a weeks. What? A last. Is the thing I kept working on. I guess she just worked for the Salvation Army, but like three okay. times I read a last for the Salvation Army. I guess that's a thing. Right. I didn't look it up. A few weeks after her birth, 18 days actually, she was baptized in the barracks of the Salvation Army. 18 again. I know. It's kind of weird, right? Yeah. Oh, to be 18 again. All to be 18 days again. <laughs> 18 days old again. That was really my peak. Yeah, I was just puking up breast milk. That Not was... much has changed. Amy was rebellious growing up. She was called precocious and actively resistant resisted everyone's attempts at governing her thoughts and actions. She was rowdy at public schools from a very early age, and controlling her was an issue. Nasty woman. Nasty, nasty woman. <laughs> in high school, she wanted to be an actress and was very interested in theater, which will come back. At some point, as an actor rebellion, she started to dabble with Darwinism. Oh, no. no, no and evolution. No, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Oh, you know what? Well, I'm descended my, from a plant or whatever. <laughs> oh, my grandpa's a toad. Uh, this, this is pretty cool, right? Oh, great grandpa's a, a chimp. This is pretty neat. I like this. I know animals. <laughs> I woke up on Farm. Great grandpa's a chimp, grandpa's a toad, your parent is a eucalyptus tree, <laughs> and then it's and then man. And then yeah, and, and then you're then nasty of, woman. And then man. And then dinosaur inherits the earth. You're just some sort of like cactus with a heartbeat. So after this Darwinism phase she went through, she started to question her Christian faith, which is how she began to explore Pentecostal Holy Ghost revival meetings. Pentecostalism, if I'm correct, is an offshoot of Christianity, but from what I'm reading in the nineteenth century, started to get very showy mm-hmm. and theatrical, almost in the face of boring Protestant sermons. Mm-hmm. Hey, okay, come on. So here's a very brief, very to the point history of Pentecostalism I got from religionfacts.com. Wait, from religiouslies.org. Okay, Pentecostals are distinguished by the belief that after the Holy Spirit applies Christ, Christ, Christ applies Christ's salvation <laughs> to the sinner, there's another experience available to the believer where the Holy Spirit fills them, which many believe is the evidence by speaking in tongues. Yeah. Most Pentecostals believe that this experience should be the norm to uh, all Christians, whatever their denomination. Some believe tongues is speaking known languages, but which are unfamiliar to the speakers. Others believe tongues is speaking in languages unknown to anyone. The gift of tongues is granted upon baptism by the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals emphasize conversion, moral rigor, and a literal interpretation of the Bible. When was the first time you got the gift of tongue, if you know what I mean? You spoke with God. (laughs) (laughs) However, Pentecostals never formed a single organization. Instead, individual congregations came together to found the various denominations that constitute movement today. And also, unlike Protestant churches at the turn of the century, which were for the upper middle class, Pentecostal churches spoke to the special needs of the disaffected along with all other 
levels of society. This oh. sounds like more deeper Christianity yeah, than it's Protestant. Like almost like a more rural, more like... The hard mode of Christianity. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so the modern movement pretty much got started in Topeka, Kansas at the Bethel Bible College by Charles Fox Parnum, the college's director. In 1901, one of his students, Agnes Ozum, became the first to speak in unknown tongues. And two years later, another famous part of the movement began faith healing, which, like we said, uh, you know, go up to Voldemort, you have, you're crippled by mm. wizardry, and then he... Put on the sorting hat. He puts his hand on your head, you start sweating and speaking in tongues, and suddenly... <laughs> suddenly you're a muggle. Some notable <laughs> Pentecostal preachers have been Oral Roberts, Billy Sunday, and friend of Mickey Cohen, Billy Graham. So she starts going to Pentecostal Holy Revival meetings, and there she's introduced to Pentecostalism through a preacher named Robert James Semple, an Irish evangelist. And then I read the funniest sentence about McPherson. <laughs> Her crisis of faith became a faith crisis in which she not only fell in love with God, but also Robert Semple. <laughs> she converted to Pentecostalism and then Semple became uh, her mentor as well as her husband. So the two got married in 1908 when Amy was just 17. They started doing missionary work. Hillbillies. Canadian hillbillies. <laughs> Tundra billies. <laughs> after a few adventures of doing missionary work, they wind up in China. Mm, I and see what you're saying. The yeah. gift of tongue, missionary yeah. work. I know, I see where this is I'm going. I'm going to take my shirt off. They go to China in 1910, right? And missionary work. After a few months, Robert dies from complications due to malaria. Two years after they were married. One month later, she gave birth to their daughter, Roberta. When she returned to North America, she stayed in states, returning to Pentecostal ministries and helping her mother with Salvation Army missionary work. Two years later, she remarries an accountant named Harold Mack Stewart McPherson. Okay, so she's just gathering last names. Gathering last okay, names, yeah. Enough. After she nar- marries Mack, she becomes domesticated, which she was not a fan of at all. Together, Amy and Mack had a son named Rolf who would grow up to play <laughs> piano for the Muppets. That marriage only lasts for three years before she up and leaves Mack, not return of the Mack, and she starts her life on the road as a traveling Departure evangelist. Departure of the Mac. So they split up. She decides that she wants to be a traveling evangelist because she goes to enough of these revival things where she thinks she could do it too. So she puts together what she calls the gospel car, seven-seater. With one side, it says, Jesus is coming, get ready. And the other side says, where will you spend eternity? It's one of those cars that you see around Hollywood. A seven-seat car? Yeah. Where's the seats go? Two, 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 and then one big back seat. It's a long car. Keep in mind, this was 19, what, 15, 16? It sounds like she's driving a Tetris piece. Yeah, she's a bad long piece that you don't know what to do with, and then it just... (laughs) And then you lose. (laughs) And the engine sounded like... I'm singing a different song than you. You're singing the end of Love the One You're With. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was singing Return of the Man. Okay, so she gets the gospel car. She starts going on the road with her family. To the gospel car. God. This traveling thing was sent into motion after a religious meeting on Mount Forest in Ontario, where she had an epiphany. Her sermons at the Victory Mission in Mount Forest were becoming well attended because of the theatrics she was developing and and people were getting devoted to her. They loved seeing her get up there. At this sermon, a 10-year-old boy started speaking in tongues and people were very into it. The kids started convulsing and controlling. A doctor arrived on the scene and then the boy started shouting, glory, glory! And it was reborn through the Holy Spirit. And from that, Sister Amy, as she was being called at that time, earned $65. And that $65 was her epiphany. <laughs> hmm, cha-ching. And the Lord said, cha-ching! And the great register in the sky opened up and, <laughs> and gave me change. I gave him four 20s and he gave me a 10 and a 5. The Holy Trinity. Lemon, lemon, lemon. So disrespectful right now. <laughs> yeah, So disrespectful to someone who used religion to make money. How dare we? How dare we? So she gets a $65 and with that she buys her own raggedy old tent that her makes her followers. She buy an eighth seat with that. 
she buys a regular tent she gets her followers to help stitch together and she starts traveling with her mother and children she went wherever the lord sent her and i don't mean like where the lord sent her because there was a gig there i mean like <laughs> she would just have a feeling about a town and go there and then people were like oh we heard about I'm you i gotta go to chicago i'm hungry i'm so hungry and she would just start showing up places and she started to get really popular not only through her theatrics but because she sought the poor and disenfranchised people she'd go out there and seek who's looking for a new thing would she ask them for money no but they would like collections was a part of obviously so part of the thing so she was money. yeah she was at not asking yeah i guess she was asking for money it's not like she wouldn't put on a show for it yeah. she wasn't like traveling with a can and shaking it at people <laughs> leaving mcdonald's like she was doing a show and saying hey if you like the show leave us a review <laughs> who would do that <laughs> who would kind of morally corrupt people would do that <laughs> who would take advantage of the disenfranchised like that so people who were really desperate to see a sign from god and didn't mind a little excitement at church were happy to go see sister amy her mother acted as her manager this was mentioned in one of my readings as one of the first females to travel cross country without the assistance of a male really that's yeah. a weird thing to be able to gauge yeah I, I i have a feeling too but also uh i'm sure there were like six cars <laughs> yeah, like there were five cars yeah there a man in there <laughs> i see you got seven seats there one of them is surely a man right <laughs> right that little boy's too so obviously you so have the assistance of a male he yeah. should be driving <laughs> not you you might get your period also we're in saudi arabia <laughs> in her early days she would use a megaphone she had gospel tracks and a, this good old show womanship to get people to attend her services she was getting more and more people to notice her not only by faithful people but also by the press which further got more people to attend her services wherever she went did she get mentioned by la weekly yeah but it was only online so it didn't count it was said that she first landed in echo park in 1918 with ten dollars and a tambourine possibly during her many travels across country but she would for sure come back and make her mark in echo park she went from tents to auditoriums to arenas consistently filling them in january of 1921 30,000 people attended a single service she held in san diego which 30,000 30,000 people wow. went to go see her in one single service with the word that she had the power to heal and that during the 30, service 30,000 people so yeah people were coming because they, they they knew that she they heard that she had the power to heal that people were moved to speak in tongues and that was just uh, on top of everything just a good show like she put on a really good show i wonder uh, if it was more for the entertainment value i, I mean, think what it was can you do in 1918 kind of half and, and half whenever. but i don't think anyone went to a revival meeting for a show <laughs> you know what i mean you had to like believe in god i go to church for the showmanship her sermons were particularly appealing because it was apocalyptic without being the fire and brimstone apocalyptic that kind of thing which were regular amy was very optimistic and emphasized the love of god because of her love of theatrics though her services had music storytellings healing speaking in tongues narrations of visions and presentations of biblical stories she was said to have the ability to unify a large crowd and then move them emotionally towards a go she had an intuition about group dynamics and in 1922 her popular sermons took her to australia the first of a number of trips abroad also in 1922 sister amy settled upon a spot to build her temple and finally end her life as a rambler gambler evangelist a few years prior 1918 when she first came to echo park her daughter fell ill and amy got on her knees and prayed to god and it was that moment that lord gave her a vision of a little home in los angeles california to build a house unto the lord in 1918 the city was practically unknown then still an odd oasis emphasis on odd the olympics had not garnered the city national attention quite yet the movies had just kind of got a big pull west like i said healthy climate was getting a lot of people to come here like abbott kinney was a person who had like a rough cough and he'd show up in altadena like oh i'm cured her appeal to the church going population in los angeles was summed up very well by a journalist of the day hl menken the osteopath chiropractors and other such quacks had long marked and occupied it la it swarmed with swamis spiritualists christian scientists swarmed with swamis swarmed with swamis oh should i read an old-timey voice <laughs> christian <laughs> scientists crystal gazers and, uh, and allied necromancers offered brilliant picking for the real estate speculators oil stockbrokers wiretappers and so on but the town pastors were not up to its opportunity 
communities. They range from the melancholy high church Episcopalians laboriously trying to interest retired Iowa alfalfa kings in ritualisms down to the struggling Methodists and Baptists as earnestly seeking to inflame the wives of the same monarchs with the crimes of the Pope. All this was what? over the Who heads. Who wrote this? <laughs> some guy in the 20s. It's great. All this was over the heads of the trade. The Iowans longed for something to get their teeth into. They wanted magic and noise. I really like those two words together. <laughs> magic and noise. They wanted an excuse to whoop. The McPhersons got to LA. Amy was performing sermons at the Temple Auditorium, which was later referred to as a Philharmonic Auditorium, which was on Olive and Fifth by Pershing Square, which was demolished in 1985. It was spacious, but it was still not enough to hold Sister Amy's robust audience. It could only hold 3500 and it costs $100 an hour to use, which back then was a lot. Still too much for me. So now she's in Los Angeles and looking for a church. You're cheap. Uh, <laughs> oh, and although they're doing okay money-wise, they need a big push to get the kind of church that God wants her to have. So there are no official records of how the money was raised because those documentations are gone. But from what I was reading, it seems like they were the entire church was crowdfunded. A truly nickel and dime operation, but so many nickels and dimes. So usually the collections of the first two weeks paid all the revival expenses, which included 2,000 Bibles that Sister Amy donated away and $500 to the needy. The collection money from the third and fourth week went to build a tabernacle in Los Angeles at the corner of Park Avenue and Glendale Boulevard, right beside the Echo Park Lake, which was still in its infancy at the time. She would later import and reportedly place lotuses from China at the lake because she had been to China before, which may have been why the Echo Park Lake now has lotuses on the yeah. north side and why in Echo Park we have something called the Lotus Festival. Yeah, the Lotus Festival. It might have been because of Amy's temple. Okay, back to funding. Okay. April 1922. Did she have a Patreon? Yeah, she had a Patreon and... Uh, the Patreon Saint? Who's going to be our Patreon Saint? Yeah, that could be our thing. Be a Patreon Saint, apparently, <laughs> meekly. Okay, so it's April 1922. Sister Amy said that the average donation at a meeting was two cents. Let me give you my two cents. Here's one, here's the other. A bunch of people going to church and donating two cents each person does not fund the church. However, there were a lot of people coming to see her. The temple, they ended up getting what costs $1.5 million. But Amy had also had so many followers and is such a good show woman for getting money. Her gimmicks included selling little bags of cement, $5 a piece. I don't know why. Who's buying cement? Okay, these two examples are symbols of what they're buying with their money. Oh, I'm, like you're buying this? A piece of this a land. Piece of this. Yeah, here's a little bag of cement. <laughs> here's all the termites that we dug up when we tilled the land. Uh, here's a bag of nails. Sim- it's symbolic. <laughs> here's a bag of cement and a spatula. Get to work. You paid for this, you built it. <laughs> she also sold miniature doll chairs made of redwood, which represented, you're going to love this, shares in the building cost, working on the pun, chairholder, <laughs> shareholder. If it was Uncle Forty, it would have been scareholder. <laughs> but she was not Uncle Scare Forty. Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> I love overpunning words. <laughs> That's what I yell when I'm on the Indiana Jones ride. Scareholder. How are we going to get out of this one? <laughs> so each doll chair cost $25, and the chairholders were financing not only a seat at this new Sister Amy Temple. Chairholder? What am I, at a Jewish wedding? Uh, actually, you can't go to those. We prefer if you didn't do that. They were not only financing the chairs they were sitting in, but also the space around it, the floor, the ceiling. This was a church funded by the people and for the people. You could say a lot about Sister Amy and her intentions, but she really did give back. Like, she did build a church for mm-hmm. everyone to come to, and she used it from them. It's not like she, like, ran away with the money. And she was the one giving the, you went there, and you're gonna see her. You're preaching. gonna see her. Only her. I mean, like, she had people there, too, but she was leading all the stuff. She didn't have, like, Sister Amy presents you know, yeah. Mary Magdalene, and you're like, what? Mary Magdalene. The Virgin Mary brought to <laughs> you brought by, you by Sister, Sister Amy. Amy. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, I'd give more than two cents for that. <laughs> Here's my two cents. <laughs> this is great. It's a penny and a penny. <laughs> from this doll chair gimmick, she made $100,000. Oh my from the God. Sale is of, that all it takes? Yeah, from, from the sale of 4,000 chairs. But truly, the real bulk of the cost of the temple came from the collections basket. The humble people who worshiped God and thought Sister Amy was an inspiration. The two cents went along 
wrong way. And whenever I gave someone two my two cents, I get hit in the mouth. <laughs> that was the end of the road. <laughs> end of the road for you, buddy. Here's my two cents. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, please, God, no. In Denver, she raised $70,000 and was also kidnapped by the KKK who wanted to, her to preach at a secret meeting. Wait a minute. She was kidnapped by, by the, the KKK. KKK. The KKK took my baby away. The KKK forced me to pray. <laughs> <laughs> the KKK took my prayer away. So she did she do it or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, collaborator. I, they, as I will mention later, were big fans of her. <laughs> I mean, she wore the same costume they did, except for the hood. She healed the wife of the mayor of Denver, and he decreed five minutes of prayer at noon for the entire city, and later instituted a 24-hour fast period. Five I would have hated being in Denver on that day. Of like, <laughs> Sister Amy's here, you can't eat for like, till tomorrow. Oh, come on. But marijuana's legal <laughs> here. Oh, they got all these, uh, what are they called? What are, not boulder meatballs. What are they called? Oh, Denver my. nuggets? What are God, they? The, uh, the, they're, they're bowl test. What are they called? And what, you smoke them? No, you don't smoke <laughs> them. <laughs> you want to try to smoke everything. <laughs> Not Denver Nuggets. What are they called? They're, they're, they're bowl testicles that you eat, and they're called Rocky Mountain Oysters. That's what they are. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's what I want to eat. I think that you're making this up. You've never heard it? of a Rocky Mountain Oyster? No, I'm a normal guy. It's a bowl testicle. Okay, and you and you put it in your mouth. Why? Because you're hungry. <laughs> because you're hungry and a little experimental. You're uh, hungry and you're still in college and your parents can't see you. <laughs> I love it when someone says something that's disgusting, like it's so normal and like everyone knows what it is. Favorite everyone thing. does know what it is. You're the one that's weird. No. It's not weird. <laughs> when I eat them and I ask more, 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 can I take a few home? It's not weird when I ask the waiter to throw it in my face. It's not weird when I ask it to be attached to a fake bowl <laughs> and I come and eat it straight off the animal. Oh, boy. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I'm feeling faint after all this testicle talk. Um, so with a huge draw of funds from her supporters, Sister Amy and her followers built the Angelus Temple, which is the one that's still there to this the day. The one that's kind of like rounded on the front? Yeah, right next to Echo Park Lake. Yeah. It could hold up to 53,000 people and was one of the first mega churches in the country at the time. It contains two balconies and had a large enough space to hold... 53,000 people? Yeah, I've been in there before. It's big. <laughs> it's super big yeah it's big I brought a couple mock Rocky Mountain oysters in there I said you know what this, uh, I thought it was going to have a little bit of seats they got a lot of seats in there it was large <laughs> enough to hold Sister Amy's 200 voice choir and her ego hmm. I want to make a joke but yeah <laughs> this church was as big as she thought she was <laughs> I may start speaking in tongues because <laughs> that burn was so accurate on top of the building there was a dome with a rotating lighted cross that was visible from up to 50 miles oh my 50 miles That's what, uh, several papers said 50 miles you could see this I don't light it up anymore i don't think there was a cradle roll chapel for babies and a miracle room where the newly healed could cast away their crutches and braces opening day was on january 1st for their teeth yeah this is orthodontist yeah (laughs) doubles as an orthodontist (laughs) so opening day was on january 1st 1923 and saw a massive crowd on his very first day saw five thousand people which couldn't even fill it up but still a lot of people that's like two percent capacity i got still some seats over here guys (laughs) can't we spread out no so the church was officially called the church of the four square gospel which was what she was pretty much leading was this four idea square. of four square gospel that's how nerdy she was just four square it was named four square in response to the divine inspiration in which mcpherson claimed to have be given the interpretation of the vision recorded in ezekiel 110 which describes four living creatures with four faces john paul ringo george <laughs> and four wings i don't know the members of the wings uh linda paul uh, uh, linda, linda, linda paul george harrison <laughs> and also ringo she said that the four faces of these creatures represented christ's fourfold role as savior healer baptizer in the holy spirit and coming king Hence, i'm a child I'm a lover. I'm a, I'm a child. I'm a mother. mother. 
<laughs> I'm a sinner. No. I'm a lover. No. I'm a child. I'm a mother. I'm a sinner. I'm a saint. And don't you so feel the same? Yeah. Don't you want a complaint? No, I don't remember the words. <laughs> Hence, four square church. So throughout her career, she was said to have performed 21 sermons a week, ministering Ooh. to the homeless and the hungry, as well as the homed and the well-fed. 21 shows How a week. How is she doing this? I think she just hates being home, honestly. <laughs> I, I think she was just bored. Yeah, I think she just like... She the, didn't I, have cable. And because she was such a good show woman, her stunts during sermons are reportedly wacky taffy, crazy banana <laughs> pants, or banana crazy pants. She once rode down the aisles of the Angeles Church on a motorcycle dressed as a traffic cop to tell people the church that they might be speeding towards hell. Uh, another time she uh, came in football <laughs> hey, gear. Pull over. <laughs> Let me see your license to move into the next world that is heaven or it might be hell. I don't know. I have to check your license. Your license if you're going to hell. Is that accurate? It says here on your license that your eyes are brown, but I'm looking at you and I just see the devil. So <laughs> Another time she came in football gear and because sports fever had contaminated the population in Los Angeles, there was once a scoreboard installed on the stage of the temple to keep churchgoers up to date on the score between good and evil. She had all types of admirers, Charlie Chaplin, old horse parts himself, Milton Berle, who she reportedly had an affair with. Oh, no. According to bad Hollywood gossip. Oh, uh, he's got more than two cents for you. I want to say he's got $2. He's got a silver nickel. Nah. She was loved by gypsies and the alley members of the KKK, as well as politicians who are probably also in the KKK looking at you, John Porter, Mayor. Who else can unify such groups? Charlie Chaplin, Milton Berle, and the KKK. KKK. Speak easy operators and attorneys and hobos and regular folk. And that was her fans. At the end of the December 1923, she started her own radio station that she broadcast from the church that used two tall radio towers on the top of the building. The first broadcast took place in February of 1924, and the station was called KS. FF, which stood for call with a K, four square gospel. It was the third station the to S. square. The S is for silent and it's also silent. It's the call for silent gospel okay. and don't talk. It was the third. The S is for shut up. <laughs> the G was for get it. Should have said get out. Get out. Laugh again like I did normally. Oh, 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 I can't believe you. KSFG was apparently heard as far as South America and Hawaii. She preached over the radio station from the Angeles Temple and into homes, but also into tents, which had been set up in eight cities surrounding where Bible college students were holding revival meetings heard through loudspeakers. I believe her church at one time had 400 branches. KSFG also had another first for Los Angeles, 1924, when over the telephone through the radio broadcast, she baptized people from Angeles Temple to a church in Long Beach. First members received into a church via the radio. Does that count? No. I don't think it does. I think yeah. you need to wet your head and stuff. But I think she like oversaw it and they were wetting. You're like, what do we do now? Uh, over. Do you accept Jesus into your life? Stop. Over. And amen. Over and out. Breaker, breaker. <laughs> this is Big God Hog. <laughs> there was no commercials on KFSG because it was sponsored solely by its listeners. She also had a telephone counseling ministry initiated around the clock vigil, founded a Bible college called Lighthouse for the International Foursquare Evangelism, L-I-F-E Life, when a special guest named M. Bill Gray from the Republic like a Panama came to Angel's Temple, he brought with him a concoction called the Hallelujah Cocktail dedicated to Amy Semple McPherson, which I want to make. I'm going to read what I read. Holy water. Snake venom. Eve's apple. Babylonian grape <coughs> brandy. Ice from the crest of Mount Sinai. Lemon from the desert of Sin. Gomorrah and Sodom Vermouth. Rum aged in Noah's Ark. Add cane syrup from the Garden of Eden. And then you give the Hebrew shake and say, Hallelujah, after drinking, the praise Hebrew. the Lord. For goodness sake. <laughs> There's only ingredients enough in the world to make one of these. Yeah, I think we still have rum aged in Noah's arc that was real right noah yeah he was a rum runner two of every barrel <laughs> two of every wine red and white <laughs> so these are the salad days and they'll never end right then we get to may 18th 1926 this is the other thing that amy is known for for years mm -hmm. now she's been hitting is the it a happy ending yeah it's everyone turns out well for years now she's been hitting the gospel 
world with everything she's got and making waves. So her and her pal and member of the church, Emma Schaefer, decide to go to the ocean park and enjoy a day at the beach while they prepare for that night's sermon. They arrive at the Ocean View Hotel at Oceanfront and Rose Avenue in Venice where she had a room reserved, room 202. That was where every time she went to the beach, she would change in, into her bathing suit in this room. And this was arranged by the hotel manager, Frank Langdon. Weird fact, this hotel is still operating offers the Sister Amy Suite, room 202, to mm. stay for $300 a night. I believe it's now Here's called... my two cents. No. <laughs> Here's my two cents. Is that enough? <laughs> Is that a deposit? <laughs> Can I have free lotion? It's noon. And I thought you were about to check your watch and I was about to scream at you. So it's noon. And okay. Amy... Emma and Amy go to get waffles at the Lick Amusement Park, which we mentioned last week. Mm. And then they go to the beach and they go over their notes. Amy goes out for a dip while Emma reads and Amy comes back. Amy has Emma go back to the hotel and make a call to Ma Kennedy to remind her about something about the sermon. So Emma comes back. Amy's still there. And they go back to reading. And Amy said, I'm going to go back for another dip. And she goes pretty far out. And Emma looks up occasionally and sees Sister Amy in her brown swimming cap and green bathing suit. And she goes back to reading. And she looks up and she sees Sister Amy. And they wave. And then she goes back. And then she looks up one time and she can't see Sister Amy. And at first, she isn't alarmed. She begins looking around the pier, around the shoreline, at the hotel. And after about an hour, it becomes full-blown panic as Sister Amy is now nowhere to be found. She was trying to remain calm, but so she went back to the hotel like a second time to Dr. Frank Langdon to see if he had seen her. And he immediately called Ma Kennedy, explained that Amy went to the ocean and was now missing. And reportedly, Ma Kennedy immediately assumed that she drowned, which let your detective brain take note of that. So by 6 p.m. that night, there were 200 members of the church out there looking for Amy dead or alive, any trace of her. They had police on both. They had lifesavers jumping out there, planes uh, flying overhead. Once they thought the worst, Ma Kennedy had planes started throwing rose petals on the ocean. That evening, they had a report over KFSG that Amy is believed to be dead, and people were apparently wailing in the streets, like sobbing. Four days. Collection money went... Yeah, four four many days they were sobbing and you better believe that collection money went through the roof the search for her didn't end that night this went on four weeks apparently i read that her followers four weeks several weeks (laughs) apparently during the search i read somewhere that people kept diving into the ocean where she had believed to be submerged one person drowned doing this another person died of exposure and apparently another girl exposure what does exposure mean again i think just being out in the wilderness too long probably just being in the ocean for so long and coming back and you're just not like alive anymore there's there's no way you can be alive himself to death went out in the wilderness of venice california <laughs> another person apparently uh, killed himself from grief it was a real tragedy God. if See, she had... that's a cult of personality if people are killing themselves yeah because you're gone that's pretty bad yeah she didn't instruct them to do that mm, if uh, you read she... between the lines yeah i think she left a note <laughs> if i ever disappear kill yourself <laughs> it'd be a real tragedy if she drowned but she had not drowned. Right away, people had a lot of questions. Sister Amy swam regularly and was actively swimming that day. How did she just drown? Where's her body? Frank Langdon called Minnie Kennedy and said, your daughter was at the beach and now she's missing. And immediately she had declared that she had drowned with no further information. And she also, for weeks after this, several weeks, anytime someone had questions about it, she'd be like, well, she's dead now. She's drowned. Let's not talk about it anymore. Also, according to some sources, she seemed more worried about where the car was that the two girls had taken to the beach and asked for it to be brought back to Echo Park as soon as possible. Then people claim to have seen Amy riding passenger in a car around Culver City, not in her famous white robes, but in a bathing suit. (sighs) And by the way, Trump tactic, anytime any fishy business is brought up, like I said, my daughter has drowned, how dare you? This is a conspiracy of lies. Why had Sister Amy, days before she disappeared, ask her followers that if anything should happen to her to continue coming to Foursquare Church and keep praying and donating? (laughs) They did, because she drowned, right? But she hadn't drowned. Almost one month later, five weeks to be exact, after everyone coughed up that sweet 
grieving money. Uh, her memorial service, two days before she reemerged, raked in $40,000. Oh, my God. And once the dust had settled, Sister Amy had reappeared in a small town in Mexico called Agua Prieta, neighboring Douglas, Arizona, claiming to have been kidnapped by three people in Ocean Park. Two men came up to her and asked if she could please heal their child who was ill in a vehicle on the street. Amy rushed over to the car only to be met with a chloroform rag, which was not a uh, old ragtime song or yeah. a dance. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> and she would awaken infrequently until she was... Your baby looks like a cloth. <laughs> Guess it. Okay. She uh, was conscious in a shack somewhere. She was kept there for ransom money. Mark Kennedy received no phone calls of this, by the way. But after some 26 days, Sister Amy managed to escape, learning the three captors' routine and slipping out of the two-story cabin where they were keeping her. She had walked some 17 hours through the boiling hot desert under the summer sun before she reached a road and found a slaughterhouse in Agua Prieta and someone from the village came to her aid. And of course, it was some, it was a, you know, a summertime miracle. It was such a sensational story, which of course, she went on a small tour to tell. Bedridden, of course, but still went on <laughs> to tell her story of being kidnapped. <laughs> okay, so of course, her followers do not question this at all, but almost everyone else is, knows something is up, <laughs> including all the other churches in town that tolerated her, you know, but they still thought of her as religious vaudeville. The main person to be not convinced is District Attorney Aza Keys, who was pretty famous. I feel like we've we have talked about him before. I believe in the episode about prohibition. He moves forward with charges of obstruction of justice and subordination of perjury. On his side of the argument were the people who knew the area where she claimed to be housed during the kidnapping sheriffs of Douglas, Arizona, who knew that stretch of land that she claimed to be kidnapped from, and they knew that there was no two-story cabin in that region. There's nothing like that. People of Alba Pieta also spotted a brown-haired woman and a man for days before she arrived in distress. And also, when she supposedly wandered into the desert before being kidnapped, she was not thirsty. She was not hungry. There were no blisters on her bare feet. She was not sunburned. She was not malnourished. Not a ding on her. Also, she's autoc- a miracle. She's a miracle. I mean, she's a miracle woman. The movie about her with Barbara Stanwyck is called The Miracle Woman. It's made in 1930. Also, an odd coincidence was that around the time that she went missing, her former radio operator, Kenneth G. Almiston, a married man, had also slipped out of the public life for some five weeks. He also drowned. That, isn't that weird? <laughs> the two had been suspected of having an affair, but no one could confirm it. Some people claimed that they were spotted in Beachwood Canyon in the Hollywood Hills. Others spotted hmm. them in Carmel, California, where they apparently had a love cottage, I read. They found love cottage. Uh, it's not as fun as <laughs> the regular song. When he brought these charges against her, Keys, she claimed that she was indeed kidnapped, and all of this was, again, a conspiracy to discredit her and the temple. So she was taken to court, but days before she was to be judged, we imagine found guilty, the DA dropped the charges. Keep in mind that this was Los Angeles in the 20s, and the DA was Asia Keys, who would be later found guilty of accepting bribes, and Amy McPherson was a very wealthy woman, so we can kind of piece together what happened there. And although she was not found guilty in a court of law, she was found guilty in the public opinion. Whether she had faked it or not didn't really matter. The story was so sensational, so juicy, she couldn't live it down, and her followers were too entrenched in their hypnotic mysticism to even question it. So it like it just kind of kept going. Like Her followers still followed her, but everyone else knew that yeah. there's something phony about this That's lady. Cult of personality. Cult of personality. Yeah. After this, her remaining years of her personal life are kind of chipped away. Her mother and her Ma Kennedy battle it out publicly over the direction of the church and the management, and they go their separate ways. Her daughter, Roberta, and her basically do the same thing never reconciling her son Rolf steps in punches Fozzie Bear right in the face <laughs> he steps in as an example just to scare everybody take out the funny one he steps in and becomes the heir to the Angelus Temple and the Foursquare Gospel and by all accounts remains cool and calm and keeps the ship sailing Amy over the years developed a terrible mood disorder in 1930 suffered a nervous breakdown same year that her movie was made she began taking sleeping pills along with some other medications and in 1944 she found the right prescription if the desired effect was to meet your maker <laughs> she overdosed on sleeping pills in Oakland California where she was preaching on tour. If you're wondering what happened to the Foursquare Gospel, let me tell you that they are doing fine. They eventually evolved into an independent Pentecostal dominant 
Dominoculus. Dom- they eventually evolved. I'm speaking tongue. No, speaking tums. 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 Speaking tums now. Tums. They eventually evolved into the. Tums. 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 They eventually evolved into the independent Pentecostal denomination that in 1997 would claim more than 2 million members in over 21,000 churches around the world. The church services that are obviously not as well attended as they were in the 20s when she was leading it, but they still have dedicated followers in the temple, which shares the same block as the Echoplex and the former Echoes Under Sunset. The Foursquare Gospel is not. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. The Foursquare Gospel is not a cult cult because when I think of a cult cult, I think nefarious intentions with a singular figurehead, which Amy was. And had. Uh, yeah. Other than like raking in sweet dough, she had no <laughs> ill intentions. You know what I mean? Like she didn't I wish guess, harm on anyone. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess uh, Goldman Sachs and the Koch brothers, I mean, they're, they're, they're not so bad. They're not according so bad. According to Greg. According to Greg. You know, like they give back. Okay. They build a nice building. <laughs> You can look at the building. That's your building to look at. You got to look at the You paid for that. You've earned it. You're going to see my limo drive by. <laughs> she had no ill intentions. I don't think she, I don't think that she was faking her faith. She was maybe monetizing it, but she wasn't faking it. And in the end, she was dedicated and a jubilant show woman who hated responsibility. And after years on the road, probably saw herself more as freewheeling than anyone could really understand. Like I see her and when I'm reading more about her, I kind of think about like Neil Cassidy and Don Draper where they want to live freely and off the cuff, but they also want to settle down and you own things. Dick Whitley. Whitman, you're spoiling it for everybody. <laughs> They're not supposed to know that he's really Dick Whitley. Dick, Amy Semple McPherson, with all her ballyhooey charm and shadowy plays, and is a perfect Los Angeles character to me. She's that kind of high and low person that like movie mm-hmm. stars are, where like you see them on the big screen and they're fantastic, and then you find out that they're like yeah. doing all a, the a, drugs in a little hotel room in like Watts or something yeah, like a that. rascally rascal, a, a shadowy a rascally rascal. They are not only the fireworks that are also the creepy ashes that come to earth that they have no lights and they hit the ground you're like oh god what happened that's most of amy simple that i wanted to talk about and i like to thank lord martin knowledge with the glendale public library special Ooh. collections laura martin knowledge i thought you said lord martin knowledge yeah lord martin knowledge <laughs> that's where i get all of my information lord knowledge i think that qualifies as cult although i guess technically it's more of a sect than yeah a cult. it's more of a sect but i think because she was so famous would yeah. you consider someone like joel austin cultish cultish but i wouldn't call them a cult yeah the yeah. cult of austin the cult of austin yeah i think like if you're a figurehead and you have a lot of followers mm. that there's cult qualities like yeah like all those meek heads out there our patreon saints the <laughs> meeklings <laughs> patreon saints. defenders of the meek <laughs> i think that uh, what makes up a lot of cults when we talk about cults is nefarious intentions and like if anything bad happens everyone's gotta blow something up like that's a well, cult to me well that's what uh with my two it yeah. sort of starts out uh, with good intentions and then something's like well it's us against them yeah that's <laughs> at the, a certain point but i don't know i mean was the manson family ever good like did they ever start they, with good intentions other than being in the monkeys or i whatever? mean they put the monkeys <laughs> jesus christ uh who's the beach boys didn't oh, he try out for the monkeys or something i think they or, recorded a song with um Mike Nesmith? Yeah, one of those guys. No, not Nesmith, the other one. No, I would keep wanting to say Peter Tosh. Yeah, reggae man, Peter Tosh. <laughs> reggae man! Yeah, reggae man, Peter Tosh. Yeah, <laughs> the Manson family was about yeah, free love track. and living your inner truth or something. Yeah, it acid and being homeless messed with okay. them after a long time. Yeah. But they kind of wanted to as just it live does, free as a family. I mean, family. I went through that phase. I was a garbage person, you know. <laughs> Greg's I, views. He <laughs> loves Goldman Sachs. He thinks people that live on the street are garbage people. He calls them Oscar. Okay, they ate or garbage yeah. and they collected garbage. They're garbage people. These are the Manson spe- spe- specifically the Manson family. <laughs> and also, like, emotionally, psychologically, if you're 
if you're making Squeaky have sex with Mr. Spawn so you can stay there, you're garbage. See, that's what I mean. Like, they never had an innocence about No, that, they seems. never had... I mean, like, the, okay, so Charles Manson has spent, like, 70% of his life in jail <laughs> up to that point. Up to the point where he's like, I'm going to drive around in a van with blacked out windows and pick up girls. <laughs> he's just bumping up his average now. I'm glad we're still talking about the Mansons after at the beginning saying we're not going to talk about the Mansons. I, I don't know enough. Uh, neither do I. I mean, I, I heard they were pretty good guys. Yeah, that album in the 90s was really good. That first one, but he kind of went off the rails. We talking about, oh, the different Manson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that he took his ribs out so he could eat Denver testicles or whatever. Denver testicles. So my first one, this one, this one is a cult. But again, this isn't a nefarious cult. Yeah. I think we're kind of saving our nefarious ones for last. But this one, the, this one is, again, it sort of starts out, cults just sort of gradually happen. Like I, I can kind of see now getting involved with a cult yeah. because sometimes it's like, oh, I'm just hanging out with these friends and yeah. all of a sudden, why like is my head shaved? They, all of a sudden, why are they making me move to the top of a volcano? They're making I, we've me all read been this there. book. We've, we all want to just fit in in high school and then we're on the top of Mount Krakatoa. And suddenly we're Krishnas. <laughs> suddenly I've killed so many government <laughs> officials that I don't even know where I am. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about Father Yod and the Source family. You have been so excited to tell Do me Do you this. know much about Father Yod? Not a thing. I have never even heard of that name before. Yoda. Spell it for me. Y-O-D. Yoda. 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 Yeah. Uh, hey, I wonder if that's where it came from, actually. This was before Star Wars. Read it. We'll find out. Well, it all started on Dagobah. <laughs> and he says everything. All sentences are kind of mishmash and out of place. <laughs> there are these kind of like a mouth he, dyslexia. He, he tried to eat this robot's breadstick, but why does a robot want a breadstick? Uh, I think he just wants to have it as a souvenir. Like, <laughs> a man, like he's like Wally. He just collects trash. R2... That way, R2, kill him. <laughs> I don't like him. He smells bad. He's talking to me, Luke Skywalker, Prince of the Galaxy. Let's get into it. Table for one, please. Could I order a plate of divine enlightenment with a side of communal free love? No police scrutiny, please. I'm allergic to society's norms. You wrote that. Uh, Check, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, your card's been declined. <laughs> You're going to have to work at this, this restaurant. This isn't a restaurant This anymore. is how you get in cults. I write one bounce check. And uh, <laughs> suddenly the place closes down. I'm going to be talking about LA's very first restaurant turned cult turned podcast topic the Source family. It all started, as many cults do, with a man. This time, the man's name was James E. Baker, born All-American on the All-American Day of July 4th, 1922 in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was born the great-grandson of the Mountain Man, who had three wives and 14 kids. And keep that in mind when you consider, is this nature, nurture, nougat sort of thing. Jim Baker's dad was also named Jim Baker, and little Jim Jim was six months old when his dad left. But that should be known. Never got to know his dad. And said, no, well, I mean, I think you learn everything within six months of meeting somebody. This sent him on a lifelong quest to find and then become a father to whoever would have him as their father. Um, A weird goal. Who's your daddy? Me. After quitting high school, Jim joined the Civilian Conservation Corps before then going back to high school to become a swimming and state archery champion before then joining up to fight in World War II, where he was a Marine Raider in the South Pacific and was awarded the Silver Star Medal, which is the third highest medal that you can receive Hmm. behind the Medal of Honor uh, Modern Warfare Call of Duty Uh, hardest level No cheat codes. He went through World War II without using a single revive. <laughs> According to him, during the war, he had shot down an entire fleet of attacking Japanese planes from the deck of a sinking Navy ship. Oh. That sounds like something that someone would say without there being any proof of it. I don't know. I mean, were you there? But also, there were sharks in the water. <laughs> there were sharks. I punched and... them all in the nose, and they ran <laughs> and away. They ran, and they swam away. And also, an alien. 
after the war, the six foot four war hero that he was, he did the only thing he knew how to do, show off his masculinity by opening up Baker's Gym as a mecca for bodybuilding, martial arts, archery, and swimming. In 1949, he beat the world heavyweight judo champ in 17 seconds, and in 1950, he produced the Mr. America contest. Wow. I don't know why you're not impressed by this. I'm impressed. I, I was about to start doing, can I do something while you read this? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, this sounds also 70s, and it's like, what, 1950? In 1949. He was a strong man. That's great. That's That's what he was. But as the world found less and less use for strong men, he decided to try the one career that a guy with his talents was still useful for, Hollywood stuntman. So in 1951, he moved to Los Angeles to give it a try, and he auditioned to play Tarzan in the upcoming Tarzan movie, but he didn't get called back, so he decided to shave his head. And then they called him and told him he got the part, but now he didn't look like Tarzan. Oh my God. So he lost the the part again. They didn't have wigs back then? No. So now he was just another... Nobody who came to LA to work in movies only to find he didn't look like Tarzan, just like no all the hair. rest of us. Now, now he, he had, had no, no hair, hair. And he was getting sunburned. <laughs> and good luck making friends in Los Angeles without hair. Yeah, well, you know, and appear all the Peter Lorre roles. <laughs> to try to find himself in 1951, he joined the Hindu Vedanta monks for six months. Did he do that only because his head was shaved? Yeah, he was halfway there. <laughs> he went to the unemployment office. Well, I've can, got a shaved I, head. And a high school diploma. What can I do? <laughs> Get to the Hindu temple, my boy. <laughs> he also dabbled with the Nature Boys, who were some sort of ancestor to the LA be seen okay uh, and with them he was influenced by the mystic manly p hall everything he does is manly. manly yeah and he started down the path of the spiritual health food all natural way of life with these nature boys so that's kind of how they get you to be sort of cult. Those, those nature boys those are nature, at it boys, again. Those nature, nature house <laughs> while on this path he opened up a sandal shop in topanga canyon and was twice accused and acquitted of murder for killing people by judo chopping them that's real <laughs> yeah Wow. Okay. Maybe he was Tarzan. Uh, Me, Jane. Me, pain. Me in pain. (laughs) Me, Tarzan. You in pain. (laughs) He also claimed to have robbed between two and 11 banks to fund what will become his first restaurant, the Aware Inn, which opened in 1957 on Sunset Boulevard. Question? How many banks? Two to 11? Between two and 11. Police code for bank robbery is 211. That's true. This is all just a sign that this is a divine (laughs) We have to rob banks now. (laughs) He opened this restaurant with his wife, Elaine, and it was the first gourmet organic restaurant in the country. Naturally, it closed down and he opened a second restaurant down the street called the old world naturally it closed down and he divorced elaine and left their three kids to remarry from what i understand a samoan chief's daughter who he had cured of some illness with his organic methods now you will marry me i have given you life and now your life is mine (laughs) he then also left her and then got re-remarried to a french woman named dora jagla who got him into the hippie lifestyle naturally he divorced her too in 1969 in 1969 he divorced her but that was the year sorry what year was this 1969 oh yeah they landed on the moon yeah supposedly (laughs) that was the year that brought him to an even greater love or at least to a love of more than just one woman that year he tried to convince a hiker he met on a trail in Calabasas to give him $35,000 to open up a new restaurant based on the dietary wisdom found in the teachings of Jesus Christ as revealed through the Essene Gospels of Peace say no more you had me a dietary wisdom (laughs) Luckily, I brought my emergency.
emergency hiking $35,000 bill. So he got the money and on April 1st, 1969, he opened up The Source. It was a restaurant on Sunset and Sweetser at 8301 Sunset where Cabo Cantina now is, a cult of its own. Uh, Those margaritas are a cult. Hi, caramba. This episode brought to you by Cabo Cantina. If you go on a particular night of the week, we will be working there. Give yourself up to the salsa. This was one of the first of many to come restaurants in LA to market raw organic vegetarian food as being something that will benefit you spiritually not just health but spiritual here's a head of lettuce is $15 God will love you feed it that's what I imagine that's like no it was cabbage here's some Brussels sprouts it's $30 Brussels sprouts you have you even seen the light I mean (laughs) dude have you eaten the earth before have you taken a knife and fork and gone to town on mother nature I mean who are you at first, they served only uncooked food, but eventually their menu morphed into things like the aware salad, which was one of the most popular dishes, and soon it was hugely, po- hugely popular. Yeah, hugely popular. In their prime, they were taking in $300,000 a month. That's more than your church. <laughs> it was a celebrity hotspot for people like John Lennon, one of the four squares, yeah. Andy Warhol, Oscar ruiner Warren Beatty, and food enthusiast, as an understatement, Marlon Brando. Celebrities, they loved it because the staff didn't care care about celebrities and most things in this mortal realm as you'll soon find out. This was also the restaurant that Woody Allen goes to when he comes to LA in Annie Hall. Really? Yeah. uh, When he crashes into all the cars in the parking lot. Yeah. That's the place. So things were going well for little Jim Jim. So he decided why not drag another woman into it? So he got married yet again to a woman named Robin and they took a trip to Hawaii where he was introduced to the Sikh teachings of Yogi Bhajan. It's weird because my uncle had a similar trip to Hawaii when he was in around the same time Really? Um, and he got introduced to like Yogi Bhajan. He became Sikh and he's still Sikh. He's also big in like the health food world. And I'm wondering if he knew Father Yog uh, because he was like basically the same path only without a cult. If there's only a way to ask. And now... There isn't. (laughs) So when he got back to LA, he started teaching meditation classes at the restaurant and insisted that his students call him father. To learn more about the religion, he traveled to India and met Yogi Bhajan himself and studied under him. But Jim got a little too into it and he started viewing Trying to marry him. He's like, will you take my hand? (laughs) Will you take this Brussels sprout wrapped into a ring? He started viewing Yogi Bhajan as God, which Bhajan denied since no man is God. Then father, Father Jim Jim, he took a boat down the Ganges to consider this that no man is God and someone on the boat asked him if he was Hindu or Sikh and in response neither I'm God in response he threw his turban into the river and said neither a Hindu or Sikh will I be for my soul is universal and free and then according to him everyone on the boat fell to his feet and followed him around for the rest of his time in India is that all it took? yeah they had never heard rhymes before Wow. wow that man threw a symbol of religion into a river I love him. So now with a new self-created religion and a massive ego boost, Father Jim Baker came back to LA. Now instead of just meditation classes, Baker would give other sorts of classes in the parking lot of the restaurant on Sunday mornings where he would tell people about how the world really was. His new belief system pulled from pretty much every religion there was and was always changing depending on how he was feeling. He drew from Hinduism, Sikhism, Christianity, Judaism, Kabbalah. He was obsessed with the founding fathers, so he brought Freemasonry into it, Okay, occultism, 
Hinduism, Buddhism. He would stare at the sun, wow, whatever a, made sense to him. It's like a buffet of yeah. just ideas. I made a quilt of yeah, religions and my, ideologies, <laughs> and we're all going to live under this it. This is my ideological quilt. He believed in the eternal now. That's what he was into. He made up his own Ten Commandments, emphasizing things like loving your father and sharing. The three worst things he believed he could do were to wait for one who comes not, to try to please and please not, and to love one who loves not, and That's also a, to cook the asparagus. Uh, trying to murder someone to death with judo is not on the list, strangely. <laughs> the worst thing, if you judo chop somebody, you better be judo chopping a kill. <laughs> he even wrote a book in March 1971 called Liberation that had all this in it that he sold at the restaurant for a dollar, and people came to the classes, people drifted in and out. The only known celebrity to get involved briefly, your old friend, Bud Court. Bud Court? <laughs> yeah, Harold and Maude's own Bud Court. Brewster McCloud himself? Harold. Can uh, I tell my Brewster Mc- my uh, Bud Court Bud Court story yeah, really let's, quickly? Let's hear, let's hear your classic Bud Cut. Your Bud, Bud Court. Cut, Bud Why can't Cut. either of us say his name? I was at the 76 station on Hyperion by the Galsons. I was getting gas and Bud Court came out of the car and I held the door open for her and he was like covered in paint. Didn't uh, he think he knew you from something? Yeah, he, he kept thinking he knew me from somewhere and I was pumping gas and he was talking to me kind of about, just about like gas prices or whatever and then he <laughs> thought, yeah, he thought he knew me and we started talking about something and as he walked away, I'm like, hey, just so you know, Bruce McCloud's like one of my favorite movies. <gasps> and I got in the car and I drove away before he ruined it. <laughs> I'm on drugs! <laughs> oh, that was another thing he said. It was that he was taking pain medication. He's like, ah, I'm kind of wacky right now. And Maude was in the car driving. <laughs> she was on a motorcycle. <laughs> attached to his car. <laughs> Bud Court wasn't technically, he just took classes there. Yeah, he but his original followers were his employees at the Source restaurant. And I am talking about Bud Court. Oh, you have to follow my religion or I'll fire you. He had to kick out some of the employees that he suspected of stealing from him, but the ones that remained became known as the Brotherhood of the Source. Baker was a commanding presence and he put on this godly voice when he was doing his sermons. And these kids who worked at his restaurant were mostly in their early 20s that were alone in LA looking for a father figure oh and God. desperate for community and meaning and baker stepped in promising to usher them all out of the age of pisces and into the dawn of the age of aquarius <laughs> this is what after 69 right so like yeah, after it's always after 69 if you're talking to me manson family has already put the bad taste in everyone's mouth of being a runaway who joins yeah. a father figure yeah but people are still like that is a good <laughs> idea <laughs> that was a fluke nah. it was like the new age hippies i guess drugs but, just drugs and well, not, no and your parents not returning your phone call yeah, because you couldn't afford to make the phone call because you're working at a vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> yeah, he promised like the age of Aquarius, I'm, yeah. I will be your guide. If that wouldn't hook a raw bean curd eating <laughs> runaway from Oklahoma, I don't know what else could. So the Source family was born from that. Anyone could join, but when you did, you had to give whatever you had over to the family to be shared by all of them, which usually wasn't much with these yeah. people. And that wasn't even a problem because the restaurant made more than enough money to support everybody. You also could not tell outsiders about the practices and rituals of the family. First rule of uh, the source. Fourth rule of the Don't source. Don't tell anyone about the source. There is no fight club. <laughs> oh. Oh, weird. You also had to adopt the last name of the family, which was Aquarian. All Many that. of them even changed their first names to make it more fitting. They're like, there was Electricity Aquarian, there was Isis Aquarian, Long Beach Aquarian. <laughs> um, hey, that's their chant. They never went out recruiting and they never had intentions to spread their beliefs beyond themselves, but they were very well known mostly because of the restaurant. Yeah. They were kind of beloved around town and they were seen as like the gentle Manson family. Imagine like 
your cult starting around the fact that you work at a Shakey's. Go ahead. We are the Mojos. <laughs> and for their part, they saw themselves as pioneers in the spiritual revolution that was going on right. in the early 70s. At first, the family lived in a fleet of vans parked behind the restaurant in a few scattered apartments with Baker living in a room above the restaurant. But in March 1972, Baker rented out Harry Chandler's old 24-bedroom mansion wow. in Los Feliz. Yeah, that much money to rent Harry Chandler's He was making 300000 I guess you're right. Uh, it was at 2411 Iverness Avenue and he paid a thousand dollars a month to house all of his followers who at this point numbered over a hundred of them a well-staffed restaurant this was the family's first communal home and they called it the mother house however as beloved as they may have been having them all living together in one place doing weird rituals in the backyard brought too many bad memories of people from the real Manson family that had attacked just a few years before this so their lease wasn't renewed after a year so they all moved into a house in Nichols Canyon that became known as the father house in march 1973 and all 144 people including baker himself now had to fit into three rooms oh my god i'll get more into that later Uh, i imagine like 70 of those people had to be the house itself yeah most of them were doors Uh, i'm a hinge (laughs) i'm hinge aquarian during their time at the father house the family became known for two things the first was their fashion looking good was important to baker and the rest of his followers baker cultivated a very specific look growing out his hair and a long white beard, Moses Sheik. The rest of the family also wouldn't get haircuts and develop similar but less biblical looks. He would wear nice white suits and drove around in a white Rolls Royce. The rest of the family all wore long flowing robes and would change their style depending on what cultures they were into at the moment, going, they'd be Egyptian or Asian or Roman or Greek or, I don't know, John Belushi. (laughs) That whole 70s free-flowing hippie look, kind it all stemmed from this, from this source family. They wow, set the trend really? for all that fashion. Oh, I didn't know that. They were the source. In so many ways. The second thing they became known for was their band. It went by several names such as Breath, Father Yod, and the Spirit of 76, which I'll explain. 76 because he was obsessed with the founding fathers. Founding fathers, yeah. But they finally settled on the name Yahowah 13, which I will also explain. They played in the garage of the Father House, and originally they played structured, pre-written songs, but Baker pushed them to be free and improvisational, and what resulted was... Yes! Kind of, they it was sometimes really great and sometimes unlistenable, but it was always weird, psychedelic, experimental music. Yeah. They played at the Beverly Hills High School in 1973 and recorded over 60 albums, <laughs> nine of which were sold for $10 each in a little store attached to the restaurant called the Hermit Hut on their own record label, which was Higher Key. Mm, Hermit Hut sounds really familiar. You're thinking of Hermit's Hermits? I might be thinking of uh, Hamburger that, Hamlet. Yeah, they formed that. I know that uh, that vegetarian restaurant the offshoot was hamburger hamlet (laughs) these albums they're pretty valuable now and they're sought after by collectors baker himself can be heard in several of the songs he didn't play any instruments so when the band uh, he saw the band having fun once without him and he started going i want to play i want to play so they bought him a kettle drum that he could smash into but he also recites some of his teachings in a few of the songs but it wasn't all just high fashion and indulgent jam sessions in the father house this was a self-respecting cult they got up to some weird stuff a typical day in the father house it started at 3 a.m., Baker would lead everybody in stretches and meditation and a lot of marijuana smoking. That all sounds great, except for the last one. Oh, 
prude. <laughs> they did a lot of marijuana, but they never drank alcohol. Occasionally, they did mushrooms, and once somebody brought cocaine, but Baker said he got as high as he needed from meditating mm-hmm. and also marijuana. <laughs> the hashish, which they would sometimes do, they would call it sacred shin. That's another thing of a cult. They have their own languages. Yeah. They were a very clean cult, so after the morning warm-up, everyone took a cold shower in the pool or wherever they could find water when you're in that one bathroom you yeah. had between 144 people. Yeah, there's a there's a fire hydrant that's yeah. leaking down the street. Go roll around, look around. <laughs> it rained yesterday. Some of the plants might still be wet. <laughs> I'm gonna just rub my body. <laughs> then a rotating group of them would go to work at the restaurant. Another group would do chores around the house. Whoever was currently in the band would record music, and the artists would make art. And now the weird stuff. I was just about to say, since I hope this doesn't go bad. A big thing of theirs was that they believed everybody was stuck in time locks that prevented us from awakening our spirit selves or the light body. One day, the day that they gave was April 23rd, 1973, Baker opened his time lock and went through a portal where he attained God consciousness, one of the few to ever do so in his earthly body, and he came out the other side of this portal with a new name, which was Father Yod. But this He took off his gray robes and he had white robes underneath. I thought you were dead. (laughs) No, I just killed a demon and you left me. I said, fly, don't leave. (laughs) Wait for like a day. But this name, Father Yod, didn't even last a year. Father Yod and the Source family were obsessed with the Tetragrammaton. I don't know how much you remember your Hebrew school. I remember, but it's mostly in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. So. That's the four Hebrew letters that spell out the name of God. Okay. But the the proper pronunciation was lost to humanity a long time ago, so nobody knows how it's supposed to be said. So in Judaism, you're not even supposed to try to pronounce it. I got in trouble in Hebrew school for trying. Elvis! <laughs> Stop, Daniel! And you want to know what God's name is? <laughs> Baba Booey. <laughs> Other religions have claimed it's pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah as in Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. But in February 1974, Father Yod claimed he had cracked the code and that he had found the true pronunciation and that was Yahowaho, the true name of God. He claimed it meant Yah, fire, ho, water, wa, air, and ho, earth. Like the Captain Planet. Yeah. Captain Planet says his name all the time. Unite the elements. Yahowaho! <laughs> Naturally, he took part of this name for himself and went by the new name, like I mentioned before, Yahowah, which he claimed meant was, is, will be. So that's him. But that's not even the strangest of the stuff that went on in that house. First of all, he'd walk around naked. No, thank you. Weird. Yeah. I mean, like even Adam had like a leaf. Even he had uh, some sort of a supernatural leaf clinging (laughs) to his junk, clinging to his Rocky Mountain oysters, Rocky Eden oysters. Emphasis on Rocky. Okay. (laughs) Sylvester Stallone oysters. One follower claimed to see lightning bolts coming out of his ears. They used wands and some claimed that their magic rituals, like a secret sacred ceremony called Quodosh, created a rent in the astral world and they saw vampires hanging out on their staircase. Okay. Now to address the logistics of how 144 people lived in a three-bedroom house, they would just cram them anywhere they could. Those, oh, okay, I figured. The, you know, they'd be in the attic, they'd be anywhere. When you said 144 people were living in a three-room apartment, I didn't think that like they did it in shifts. I just assumed that they just crammed in there. Yeah, they were all in there. It wasn't an apartment, though. It was a house. Uh Oh, I was worried that it was an apartment that had 144 people. You it said w- apartment. I just want you to know this wasn't an apartment. <laughs> they weren't breaking any lease. <laughs> You said only 140 people. Who's that other four? When I saw this signed rental agreement that looked like the Declaration of Independence, (laughs) I didn't see 
Isis Aquarium. All you said was no dogs. That's all you said. You didn't say I can't bring 140 people in here. We have two rules. No hashish, <laughs> and you can't have more than 140 people living in here at once. So they built what they called beehives and cubby holes in the bedrooms and hallways, which were basically four by eight bunk beds, four feet above each other, reaching up to the ceiling so they could fit over 30 people in a room. You said beehives. Whatever I saw in my head, I like lost breath for a second because I got so claustrophobic. Yeah, oh, oh no, I know. Not, not, not just claustrophobic, but just like, you know how it's gross when so many like bugs are living together? Yeah. Just like you walk into a room and, and it's, it's like, it must have looked like a concentration camp. Yeah, it must have. But with just... great fashion. Vampires everywhere. <laughs> a lot just more like, vampires. I mean, we all know that Goebbels and Himmler were vampires, right? <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. Hitler, not so much he wanted to achieve it. He not was a Frankenstein. <laughs> they also built platforms on the hillside out back to give people secluded areas for more private moments, which brings us to our next topic, the private moments. There were never... I want to talk about seclusion. There were, there were never orgies, okay. but a type of tantric sex called Dianism was encouraged while you were there. Nobody was ever forced to sleep with anybody they didn't want cool. to. And the women could choose whatever partner they wanted and the man they chose just had to go along with it. That being said, menstruating women had to use what they called cuppy towels to catch their blood. Okay. Father Yod did have the power to reassign women from the men they chose and the women weren't allowed to have outside contact in order to keep their purity. Okay. That's bad. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't talk to women, <laughs> but other people I, I hear like un- that. I find it to be impure. <laughs> Men who came into their restaurant weren't even allowed to speak to the female employees. Right. There were also a few underage girls involved in the family. Yod was arrested once for having an underage runaway living there, but it turned out she had her parents' permission to come join, so it was okay. Here's your cuppy towel. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Small child. Yeah. Your beehive is in Sector G. By the way, I'm Jerry Lee Lewis. Yod was supposedly big on liberating women, but at the same time, he had 14 women he claimed as his wives in the father house, stating to them. Then he stated spiritual law preceded man's law. These four, no, it doesn't. These 14 women were mostly in their late teens or early 20s. Yod was in his 50s, and he called them his council of women. They ran most of the operations of the restaurant and the family while he went around naked, shooting lightning out of his crotch or whatever (laughs) he did, rattling his Rocky Mountain oysters. into another dimension. With all that tantric sex going on, it was only a matter of time before babies started being born. The first one born was named Saul Amon, and 50 more were to come, all delivered naturally in this house. But Yod had a ban on Western medicine, so there was a lot of sickness that went around in there, and eventually one of the babies got a staph infection and was brought to the UCLA hospital, where I'm not sure, but I think it or another kid died. So this brought a police investigation and right. they did not like what they saw. They didn't like having to go through a hundred yeah. and uh, what? What's 144 they, plus? What's 190 people? It wasn't an apartment. Landlord's okay with this. <laughs> hey, read the lease. <laughs> this is, there's nothing in the lease about this. We, we smoke outside. We didn't hammer nails to put posters up. What do you want? Yeah. We used command strips. <laughs> Nothing's wrong here. Nothing's wrong here. Too many sick hippies living in Bumpeg. <laughs> that, that was enough. This sparked... I hope that's yeah. in the police report. Too many hippies living in bunk beds. This sparked a sort of transformation in Yod where he did seem to start to see himself as something of a god and this turned again. This is where the us versus them mentality, right. which is always a bad sign. Yeah. He predicted 
predicted that a nuclear war was coming, followed by there earthquakes, tidal waves, and volcanic eruptions. To get his followers ready, he started making them drink gold fluid condenser, which was melted gold that he claimed would protect them from radiation fallout, which I don't know how it didn't Jonestown all of them yeah. by drinking gold. Also, if I'm a follower, as much as I believe that this is God and I'm living in a family, I'm going to need some research. You know, like, show me some raw data. No, I mean... If we all believe it, it's true, right? If the Snodsberries taste like Snodsberries. <laughs> the gold fluid condenser tastes like, <laughs> you know, lead. Dying. <laughs> but with police suspicion and impending nuclear war, Yod decided he had to get the family out of LA. He had set up an outpost in Hawaii in 1970... Hawaii? Hawaii. Get this. The caves well, in Santa Susana Mountains. And they're like, no, okay. There's a ranch in Chatsworth that I hear is empty. In 1973, he set up an outpost in Hawaii in case of such an event. He would tell his followers how good the fruits in Hawaii would be and he would go, hmm, after each one. So he'd be he'd be like, coconut, mmm. <laughs> like talking to a dog. Yeah. Good. No dogs there, though. No. Okay? no. Don't oh. tell the landlord. She doesn't bark. She's small. Let's just pretend we didn't see her. You're not running a massive cult without Western medicine in here, are you? Is that a hot plate? <laughs> so they all got excited about Hawaii and then in 1974, he sold the restaurant and the father house, which later would be lived in by ABBA, a cult of its own. He moved the entire family to Hawaii, but now without the restaurant, they needed a new source of income. So they offered to work security at the airport in Kauai to keep hippies out of the airport. They weren't hired. I know how to put this fire out. More yeah. fire. Add better dressed fire. <laughs> so they planned to open a restaurant there, but they found Hawaii wasn't as open-minded as LA and people just saw them as the Manson family and wouldn't let them do anything. So now Yod was forced to go on a world journey to find a new home for his family that was not only accepting to them, but also affordable. <laughs> he went out with a small reconnaissance group to Thailand, Nepal, India, Egypt, Greece, and other places, changing his name along the way to Yahoo Yawa, and then back to Yahoo Meanwhile, the group he left behind got hepatitis. Why are you trying to figure out what name to call himself? <laughs> Whatever you do while I'm gone, do not get hepatitis. <laughs> they called the hepatitis the golden spell because of their beautiful skin color while they had it. Oh my god. In 1975, mm, golden Yo spell. Mm, mm. Tetanus. <laughs> in 1975, Yod settled in San Francisco where he briefly changed his name again to Shinwa after a Chinese restaurant he ate at that he really liked. And then he summoned the rest of the family. <laughs> he called the rest of the family out of Hawaii to join him in San Francisco. They had absolutely no money to leave the island, so they had to beg the Hawaiian welfare to buy them tickets to San Francisco, which they wanted them away, so they, yeah. they got it for them, and then they all moved into a haunted mansion together in San Francisco and reunited oh my. <laughs> with father. But they still had... There no, were no windows and no doors, so that was just more was, room for bunk beds. There, there's always my <laughs> way into the restaurant business. <laughs> they still had no money, though, so Yod told all the men... Yod toad. He told all the men... You know, my grandfather Yod toad. I'm descended from <laughs> Darwinism. My grandfather's Yoshi. <laughs> he told them that they weren't allowed to have sex anymore and that they all had to go get jobs. All the men. This started to disperse the group. They were like, I have, I can't have sex and I have to get a job. <laughs> this is not what hippiness I signed up for. And I'm living in the house of Haunted Hill. I'm living in someone else's mouth because there's no room to do anything in here. It made it harder to keep them all together. You know, people going off, I had to get jobs. But Yod, he made one last ditch effort and moved back to Hawaii, brought them all. He commanded all family members to join them there or else they'd be kicked out of the family. He had managed to wrangle up a new place there for them to live there but on August 25th, 1975 Yod saw one of his followers 
hang gliding and he got so excited about it, he decided to try it without any experience or training at all. So he jumped off a 1300 foot high cliff and crash landed promptly onto the Waimalano campground on Oahu. Supposedly his body was fully intact and his last words were something along the lines of, I meant to do that because his followers- Oh my God, I want to explode into confetti right now. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I know that we're not supposed to laugh at death anymore, but I meant- PC culture. But I meant to do that after you jumped off a cliff is so funny. (laughs) His followers believed that he did that because he was finally ready to shed his mortal body, which he did. Nine hours later, dying at will of a broken body, pretty much. As per their tradition, his body, so he's dead now, his body was surrounded by loved ones for three and a half days. He was buried with no embalming, no autopsy, and no blood transfusion because they believed all memory was contained in your blood. So now all his followers were without a father, just like he himself was as a little kid. And that's kind of how the rest of them were without him. They were just lost little children. They were evicted from their new house in Hawaii shortly after he died. And they wandered around for a couple of years before slowly dispersing in 1977. And it wasn't an easy transition back into the real world. Some fell into bad ways. A few of the women moved to Las Vegas and became prostitutes. The ones in the band were able to keep some form of the band going. In 1977, they did an album with Sky Sunlight Saxon of the Seeds. They still tour even today. Sometimes they're playing. They've played with Billy Corgan. In 2003, they released an album called The Lovers and the Chariot. And in 2007, they played at the Echoplex. Really? Right near... uh, Angelus Temple. Yeah. One of the women of the family, Isis, made a book of the story of the family that was originally just meant for the former family members, but it's available to anyone. Uh, She even had so much old video footage that in 2012, they made a documentary called The Source. Mm -hmm. There was a comic book about them in 2010. There were a few reunions in Hawaii later on. And according to the post-cult group, the Children of Yahawa, the Source family officially dissolved on March 13th, 2016. That was not that long ago. No, I guess spiritually that chapter is over. A lot of the former members look back on their time in the family differently. Some of the women feel that they had been taken advantage of sexually and were sexually abused with Father Yod referring to women as milk cows. Wow. Um, Then then there are the ones... How progressive he was. (laughs) He loved women. Nah, he loved milk cows. Then there are the ones who were just simply disillusioned and then there are the ones who look back and still believe that that old almost Tarzan war hero creep actually might have been the father of God that they were looking for. So people look back on it differently. Wow, that's really... uh, Not violent. Not violent. Maybe sexual abuse. Yeah. It was free love, but for people who weren't necessarily ready to make decisions about Exactly, yeah. So that's the Source family. I never heard of that before. I had heard whispers of Yod, and I knew that there was some sort of restaurant involved, but uh, I mean, I'm not going to go hang gliding anymore. I was... (laughs) I mean, if I go to, say, the Haunted Mansion in San Francisco, (laughs) I'm definitely going to just be me. I I will have a job. I will have a job, and I will fit that other requirement, too. (laughs) I'm not having sex. Okay. This one, I had taken a one of the Esoturic tours, and this was not the main subject of it. This just came up, and I left immediately, and I looked it up. <laughs> Pull this bus over. There are good cult names, and then there is the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven. Uh, which involves hiccups, which is how you achieve a higher entity. Like you, you pass the threshold. I got drunk on cuppy towels. It also has a plan B name, which is the Blackburn Colt, which is also pretty cool. <laughs> 
Like, you're going to do it right in the mic, or what's the deal? <laughs> I can't control it. It's my calling. The cult apparently drew its inspiration to act upon a single verse from the book of Revelations. Verse 11, 3, to be precise. Tell me something that'll shock me, and then... No. That, that. Oh, I did Father Yo too. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Cured. Cured. The cult apparently drew its inspiration to act upon... I need Amy McPherson, or a- a- Amy a- Simple McPherson to heal me. Book of Revelation, verse 11, 3, to be precise. I'm going to roll through it. And I will grant my two witnesses power to prophesies for 1260 days so away we go okay. with that single verse from <laughs> the book of revelation so it's, it's 1924 one year after sister amy miraculously returns from a vacation it starts with a mother and daughter living in bunker hill the mom is may otis blackburn who is 60 years old also a clairvoyant so we know that she's legit and her <laughs> daughter who's 24 years old ruth waylin rickenbauer rizzo okay, was he related to rolf yeah old colleagues did i not put together that both my stories have Muppets in it. <laughs> Did I not realize that the leader of this one's name is Kermit? No. This one was looked over by two older gentlemen who always sat on the side. <laughs> you really it, like I'll, that one. You really like that I'll one. I'll edit them into sound effects. <laughs> I'll edit all my hiccups into one laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Curb LA put Ruth perfectly as taxi driver and serial rich man grifter Ruth Wayland. One- that did not deserve a hiccup. <laughs> One day, walking around Bunker Hill, the angels, Michael and Gabriel, appeared to the girls and proclaimed that the gals need to shut themselves off from the world for three years and write a book about the sixth sense called The Great Sixth Seal, which would explain... <laughs> it'll the- be turned into a movie in a hundred years. <laughs> you better have it as a comic book first, and then it'll be a better movie, which would explain the mysteries of life, health, and the afterlife in heaven. Gabriel and Michael also promised to reveal the lost measurements that would lead to all the hidden gold and oil deposits in the world. The story of the lost measurements is that they were stolen from noah of noah's ark fame by his <laughs> that old bootlegger that old bootlegger <laughs> i made my myself <laughs> i'm drunk on all this noah talk so noah tall noah's son ham i didn't know noah had a son yeah named yeah ham he might have taken the names of one of his shipmates <laughs> did it again my breakfast inspired me so ham stole the lost measurements while the ark was under construction another brother named um, (laughs) Denver testicles is the brother's name they were known as uh, rocky gamora oysters (laughs) 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 it worked that's a keeper and that's all fine and good but what maroon is gonna believe all this hogwash well clifford dabney nephew of the oil magnet someone named clifford dabney nephew of the oil magnet joseph dabney of the dabney oil syndicate would come and tell me that it it was not hogwash and it was not it was just super normal and so normal and legitimate in fact that he offered the blackbird and wayland forty thousand dollars in cash and 164 acres in the santa Susana knolls in simi valley some 40 years before the manson family would gentrify this area with a new breed of crazy pants. I mean, he gave us to them over time. Dabney might seem like a dullard for this, but keep in mind that the lost measurements were in his grasp. How Dabney got mixed up with this is pretty easy. In 1924, November, Clifford and his wife Alice met the Blackbirds probably around Bunker Hill and started talking about the book that she was preordained to write and that the solar system would be in the right correlation for the book's publication in February of 1925. Mm-hmm. But they also just they, they needed that, that some startup cash for the printing of it. Along with the lost measurements promised to him were also the secrets of resurrecting the dead along with the secrets of life and death the location of precious metals and stones which i imagine was the last measurements how to get power from air a radio communication with different planets as well as spilling the beans on how the dabneys could undergo transfigurations to a divine nature so they of course decided to join and were inducted into the order through the medium of a concord and 500 dollars cash much later when asked in an official capacity meaning in court whether the <laughs> concord always called for cash 
Josh under Depp, oath. Under oath, <laughs> putting his hand on a real book of uh, faith. <laughs> the Dianetics. They asked him on the stand if the Concord always called for cash, and Dabney replied, checks cash or chickens? I thought, Do you accept chickens? <laughs> well, I have a lot of chickens, <laughs> which is the other son of Noah. The triplets. The triplets. <laughs> I thought he just gave the cult a truck full of chickens, but apparently one day in the compound, he wrote a check for $325 for 600 chickens. These chickens were supposedly meant to represent the bird's head or the sixth seal of the great sixth oh, seal. Uh, Make it out to poultry. Care of nugget. Fun piece of Dabney lore. I love this segment of Ray- our show. Dabney lore. Raymond Chandler came to work for the Dabney Oil Syndicate in the 20s as a bookkeeper and auditor in their LA office at Signal Hill and eventually became office manager and vice president before being fired 10 years later for being a goddamn alcoholic. But because he had testified for the Dabneys, two of his oil pals offered him $100 a month for living expenses, which he used to stay put, drink, and hone his writing skills. His novels stem from that. <laughs> Back to the cult. So the cult of about 100 people moved from LA to somewhere called the Harmony Hamlet Retreat in Simi Valley. <laughs> Related to the Hamburger Hamlet, the offshoot of the very vegetarian source restaurant. You didn't know that Hamburger Hamlet is uh, full of uh, Illuminati symbiology? <laughs> Look at your pickles next time you order, okay? <laughs> Harmony Hamlet was above the Chatsworth Reservoir where they built a dozen cabins and a temple that they filled with furniture which included a massive gilded wooden throne that rested on four hand-carved paws and adorned with a lion's head. This temple was sealed off from the members of the order because it was meant for Jesus upon his return. So what was the day-to-day like? Well, if you were a member of the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven, then you worked at a local steamy tomato packing shed and the entirety of your paycheck was collected by Mae Blackburn and her grimy and goofy-looking husband, Ward. Ward Blackburn. Now, Ward. Now, Ward is a, a known creep. I found a picture of him which shows his long handlebar mustache, but it doesn't show his five-inch-long fingernails that I read about. Ew. The Blackbirds always arrived in a big black car driven by a bodyguard to protect them and the secrets of the last measurements. At night, the members would usually watch the high priestess kill mules. They referred to them... <laughs> Again, as- people didn't have cable back then. <laughs> Remind me what things look like when they die. Oh, last yeah. night on Mule Killing, <laughs> I killed a mule. Oh, it's the season finale of Mule Killing tonight. <laughs> According to some of the Force Rangers on duty, after the animal sacrifices, they usually would just dance around naked. Now, there are reports of a woman named Jenny Blackburn, who was May Otis's mother, but the paper that I read this from says that she was 65, and another thing says that May Otis is 60, so I don't know how old either one of these women were. Otis's mother was on the compound. They called her Grandma Jenny, the queen of the scale. Grandma Jenny was chained to a bed for two months to establish a point of religious oscillation. In the LA Times, she said that she had the keys to the padlock, and the chains were long enough so she could at least go downstairs. She said her concord of the musical scales, hence she was the queen of scales, called for her to be at her point, point of oscillation, and the angels would tell her daughter when to release her from her chains. Again, this is cult terminology that it's, only makes sense to them. It only makes sense to people who are making things up. Yeah, who've watched a mule get killed every night every during sweeps week. <laughs> Tonight, a donkey. Uh, this is They jumped the they donkey. Jumped, ah. Which is where that phrase comes from. So I think before they moved to Simi Valley, they were set up at Wilshire and Western. Ward Blackburn acted as a weatherman with a coffee can and counted cars on Wilshire Boulevard as he was instructed to by the women as to keep his ass busy with nothing work. He said that when the weather was clear, he made a record of it. And when it rained, he made a record for that too. The coffee can was to measure the rain and record it. <laughs> Two cups of rain today. Two cup- oh boy. It's count- a full roast of a night tonight. When they moved to Santa Susana, they made him count trains. Well, they only kill animals, right? That's fine. Oh, they kill animals, don't they? That's fine. <laughs> they shoot horses, don't they? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> the sequel. There was that one time where there was just 30-year-old woman named Florence Turner, who was a member of the family from Monterey Park, who had a blood malady, and to cure her... Blood melody or blood malady? Malady. I thought it was like a Disney cartoon. Well, we... we... Bloody melody. <laughs> they had a fascination that they thought they could unlock Mrs. 
criticism with hot and cold that keep that in mind so this florence turner had a blood malady and to cure her they put her they put her in a brick oven that they made oh no in order to bake away the illness their Did defense they give her was a at least their defense was we didn't keep her on the entire time we like rolled her over and lowered the we wanted her to have an even cook we don't oh know if it worked or not because two days later she died wow so we don't know if it was cured or not because she died they baked someone to death yeah but not like they didn't like set her on fire it was like over time it's like a it, slow they Dutch roast her. no big deal <laughs> a human goulash ridiculous yeah well it's probably maybe the second most ridiculous oh, no. thing then there was this other thing that they're kind of known for so there's this wealthy family the Rhodes William his wife Martha and their adopted daughter Willow who moved from Oregon to Southern California just to join the Blackburns and bask in the glory of the sixth seal Willow became a high priestess to them known as the tree of life well how why did they call it the tree of life how this happened was on Christmas Day 1925 Willow complained of a toothache and from this toothache she developed an infection and on New Year's Day she died no foul play there the roads turned to the Blackburns for help and they filled the holy bathtub with holy ice and some spices and salt they laid Willow's body on it and said that she was a tree and would spring to life in 1260 days but just past the two-year mark of their dead daughter rotting in a bathtub they had to move her a couple times and by the way to move their dead adopted daughter from place to place they put her in the back seat and propped her up and it was noted that she was so well preserved that people upon first and only glance thought that she had not been dead for two years wait a minute so they kept her in ice in a bathtub for two years probably not in the bathtub the whole time because i think that they, they moved in this two-year span but they were moving her around and she was preserved and she was supposed to sprout anew anew and live which is relates to the bible passage that they had yeah. so the roads finally settled in a bungalow in venice it's like if the bates family had more family <laughs> i had another bathroom the roads finally settling in a bungalow in venice more specifically marco place which is just off of venice boulevard near lincoln so they built a metal coffin and they put willa in it with spices no more ice she was gonna just naturally decompose buried next to the priestess was seven puppies that were dead i had to look that up before i can continue writing that represented the seven tones of the angel gabriel's trumpet so while everyone is waiting for willa the high priestess to rise from the dead may otis blackburn returns to her craft writing so now it's 1929 and the blackburns have not revealed the lost measurements and clifford dabney is of course pissed so he sues the blackburns for fraud so the police start looking into the cult and they hear word of these missing people in particular four members who cannot be found while this investigation is going on they go to the Rhodes bungalow they dig up the high priestess herself with a rose and they're like wow okay <laughs> where did these puppies come ah, from who built this coffin that's really neat <laughs> and that's not good for anybody <laughs> along with that more members start coming forward and suing the family for grand theft charges totaling in 50 grand which they collectively earned from all these dopes so while sitting in jail for these charges the angel Gabriel once again <laughs> appeared to Mayotis Blackbird and assured her of her I don't know you guys <laughs> uh, my hands are clean I'm an angel my hands are clean I have dirty faces as <laughs> all angels do I may be your Patreon saint but I I am not affiliated with this. He assured her of an acquittal. The angel Gabriel, that is. Where'd he learn that term? You've been watching Law and Order. <laughs> Law and Order. <laughs> Spiritual Victims Unit. Gabriel was wrong. The Blackburns were charged with eight of the 15 counts of grand theft, and they were released on $10,000 bail in 1930. I don't know how courts work. They couldn't find anything, apparently, on the four missing members. Although, I found one article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle says that authorities had found the buried body of a woman from Portland named Harleen Satoris, who had died of an illness. So maybe it's another one of these natural deaths, 
but unknown burial things, so she wasn't murdered. Mae Blackburn once tried to get a pharmacist's wife to join the order, specifying that they needed a pharmacist to prescribe poison to kill Ruth's husband, Sammy Rizzo. This was not something that the Blackburns wanted to do, but the angels told her that she needed to be done. She didn't give her poison, but she did give her something that Blackburn thought was poison, but really was just colored water. However, with that allegation, police could not locate Sammy Rizzo and never did. So there's that. Then there's this. The following year, the Supreme Court ruled that testimony about the cult's weird rituals was wrongly admitted at the Blackburns' trial. Turns out this is a free country and you have the right mm -hmm. to religious worship and, and they bury whoever you want, yeah, wherever yeah, you want. Yeah, exactly. There is no foul play here. Really, the courts couldn't do anything about it. Like, again, like, will it die naturally? Other girl die naturally? Is it against the law to have your daughter in a bathtub it after probably she died? is, but... Because if it is, lock me up. <laughs> I remember a couple years lock ago... Lock me up. Lock me up. That's Trump supporting Hillary Clinton. She was their prophet and they had, you know, they had rights to religious ceremonies. So if you want to, if you say, oh, religiously, we thought she was going to turn into a tree. You got to kind of let them slide. Religiously speaking? We thought she was going to turn into a tree. I thought she, your honor, in my defense, <laughs> I thought she was going to turn into a tree. How many times have I claimed that in court? <laughs> so at that point, Blackburns and the Divine Order, the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven Cult, reportedly moved to Lake Tahoe and were never heard from again. How much can you get away with under the banner of religion? Yeah, it seems like once you figure that out and yeah. figure out how to monetize it. Once you know how to balance church and state, uh, yeah. you're a cult leader. You might be a cult you leader. You might be a cult leader. <laughs> if you're a weird figurehead and you make people have sex with each other, you might be a cult figurehead. Let's get into the last one here. Sometimes we get a story on this podcast that doesn't really have much there and we have to either abandon it or just spice it up by relying on our world-renowned banter. Ha 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 Hiccup. <laughs> this is not one of those stories. No banter. Don't say anything. Everybody be quiet. Please, I'll shut up. No laughing. Hiccup. I don't know that much about a lot of cults, but this is maybe the most perfect example of how a group of people become a cult and then go too far I've ever seen. And it's also insane and perfectly chronological, which pleases me on so many levels. Oh, yes. This is a story of Synanon and its founder, Charles Edwin Diedrich. He was born in Toledo, Ohio on March 22nd, 1913. He lost his dad in a car crash at the age of four. And you know what that means for a future <laughs> cult leader. A lifelong quest to be daddy. He Cosmic daddy. Cosmic daddy's here. That's the name of my bowling team. He became an alcoholic in his teens and then went to Notre Dame where he flunked out after 18 months. That's good. Uh, wasn't there 18 in another story? Amy Semple, her birth was surrounded by the number 18. After that, he dropped out of Toledo University, becoming a traveling salesman and sales executive for Gulf Oil for nine years and was left by his first wife, whose name was Chill Nessa, which sounds like a really cool lady. <laughs> Relax. Uh, she looks like yeah. <laughs> so she left him for his drinking which is very, not very chill Nessa if I may say uptight Recca it was at this point he decided to make a change and move to Santa Monica in the 40s where he became a beach bum and eventually got jobs working for Hughes Tools and making models for Douglas Aircraft ah. he found himself a second wife named Ruth Alicious yeah. <laughs> who also left him because of his drinking Ruth went on to get murdered by her next husband but I don't know that story you could say that he was ruthless. That's when he realized he needed to make a change again. This is when three things happened that was just the change he was looking for. The first was that someone found him drunk on a kitchen floor and told him, Fatso, if you do not go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you will die. Fatso that he was, he took this rude stranger's advice and in 1956 at age 43, he went to his first AA meeting in Beverly Hills. He loved it and he started going to meetings every single day. Second thing that happened was he read Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson after he had a nervous breakdown. So this spoke to him on a really deep level for whatever reason 
prison and it made him want to devote his life to helping other alcoholics so he started volunteering to do talks for AA around the state and I wish the story ended there it'd be so nice I know and he was a great guy he's a saint now a Patreon saint as he put it I say this with as much humility as I am capable which isn't very much but when I sit down and start to talk people start gathering it's inevitable no matter where I do it it just happens I can't stop it I'm so humble but I just want to say that my friends look at me like I'm a symbol I I'm gonna let you finish (laughs) when people look at me what they see is usually like some kind of like cosmic sense of justice you know what I mean when they see me they see wow now that is a man who knows alcohol (laughs) now the third thing was an experiment at UCLA with Dr. Keith Dittman that he volunteered for to get some money and Uh, now he's the incredible Hulk and I know this is everything leading up to this is the same story as Captain America (laughs) the experiment was to try to cure alcoholics by giving them LSD he took LSD he didn't hallucinate or anything but when he took it he did have an epiphany we're gonna wean you off of cigarettes with heroin you don't need to drink anymore you have hard drugs (laughs) so his epiphany was that good and bad were the same and also that he was God wow those are two bad ideas that is two really bad ideas from from this newfound outlook and unnecessary ego boost for the oh boy the quotes the quotes he has are just wonderful he decided in 1958 to gather some of his AA students and have private meetings of his own in a storefront next to his apartment in Ocean Park he used his $33 unemployment check to rent out this storefront gross i had hiccups you're sneezing that's gross so this new group that he formed went by the name the tender loving care group oh my god he let Big f- brother and company he, he let yeah. tender loving in the holding company <laughs> he let 15 recovering alcoholics live in this space and they would shower using a hose he stuck through the window oh he'd counsel them god. using tough love and he had wonderful sayings like who needs alcohol here we can get drunk with ideas oh my god i would have left right there <laughs> his most famous who needs alcohol bye who needs alcohol me that's why i'm here that's why I'm here. His most famous saying, though, was what he would tell new members, today is the first day of the rest of your life. No. That was from him. So their name didn't last long, however, when one of the members slurred the words symposium and seminar, and he ended up saying synonym and the new name, that's it. That's yeah, what we're going r- with. Going with a flub? What are you, Ally Meekly? <laughs> His little beachfront practice was the first self-help, no doctor-involved rehab, and treatments involved tough love, as I said, and attack therapy. Um, the main method he used was known as the game. So let me tell you how you play the game. Board game pieces in place. Yeah. I call Thimble. (laughs) So he would gather eight to ten Sinonites, as they were called, and put them in a room together and would pose a question to the group, something along the lines of, who's the most boring person here? And from there, anybody could say anything they wanted to anybody else. They could be as mean and as cruel as they wanted. Talk dirty and live clean. That was his motto. There were no secrets. The only two rules, there's no such thing as Father Yoder, whatever we said (laughs) earlier. The only two rules were no violence and no threats of physical violence. Other than that, they were encouraged to take out all their anger and aggression with the objective of getting a reaction out of somebody and tearing each other down to nothing until they were forced to face their own demons and admit what was wrong with them rose battle <laughs> that sounds like an emotional dogfight that i would never recover from yeah well it that was the point you need to be broken down wow and okay. i'm gonna start now <laughs> who's the most boring person here according to diedrich there was something wrong with them he would make it clear to yeah. them to get into synanon you had to admit you were an addict and you were reminded of that 
every single day. As Diedrich said, crime is stupid, delinquency is stupid, and the use of narcotics is stupid. What Synanon is dealing with is addiction to stupidity. He said, one cannot get up until he's knocked down. Once you were knocked down, he could rebuild you with his own ideas. Once hard drug addicts started coming in, which the alcoholics didn't like, so he responded by kicking out all the alcoholics and focusing solely on drug addicts, he'd use the game to attack them for their past mistakes and would tell them they had mommy issues and would try to control who they dated and that if they gave up on his program, they'd be lost forever and they shouldn't even talk to their families until the treatment was over, which he would call containment. I see all the ingredients on the table right now. This is nothing. Some people were critical of this brainwashing, but he responded by saying brainwashing is a very apt term. We get very dirty brains in here. He told his patients not to try to reason of what he told them to do. Just do what he said and act like it was right. Them thinking on their own is what got them here in the first place. He felt that giving a dope addict the freedom to think was like giving a gun to a baby. I don't want you to be addicted to drugs. I want you to be addicted to me. Yeah. He used the game to gang up on you and break you down and bend you to his will and you had to play this game three times a week which wasn't entirely bad because all he was really trying to do was help you kick the habit and people swore by the game. They really felt like it was helping them come to terms with their troubles and that the confrontational nature of it helped them find their voice and how to you know speak up and fight for yourself. Outside of the game if you were caught using you were given a haircut which means you were publicly shamed in front of all the others and then given an actual haircut and your head was shaved and then you had to sit in a trash can probably with your own hair in it but again people were into this if you had a serious drug addiction like what else are you going to do i mean like you're used to the self-abuse anyways narcotics anonymous had been around for a few years at this point but it was kind of disorganized and then diedrich steps in promising a revolution in drug treatment so why not anything less than changing the world as mickey mouse he would say speaking of another cult thing (laughs) don't get caught using in front of mickey i would do mickey voice but we've been sued for last month's episode this all wasn't very profitable the Sinanites had to beg for food from catering trucks and prostitutes and relied on donations. But on September 15th, 1958, Diedrich registered them as a non-profit since they were a drug treatment facility. So now they wouldn't have to pay taxes, but that eventually drew attention from the law. And in 1961, Diedrich was sent to jail for a few weeks for zoning violations and operating without a license. But that was the best thing that happened because now the man had gone <laughs> after the little guy oh. just trying to help drug addicts. So yeah. he became a martyr and now his cause got its moment in the spotlight. So when the powerful people of the world were alerted to the existence of this struggling enterprise, they did whatever they could to help. Big companies donated food, clothes, furniture, whatever they needed. Life magazine did a spread on them. Governor Edmund Brown Sr., Jerry Brown's dad, he passed a bill that made Synanon exempt from health licensing laws so they wouldn't be hassled in the future and no rules were ever actually set for how they should operate. Liberals. Welcome to California. (laughs) By 1962, they managed to get enough money to move into the old National Guard building in Santa Monica at 1910 Ocean Way, which is right where Inkwell Beach had been just a few years before that. This provided a new headquarters for Diedrich's growing enterprise, which at this point had several hundred patients. Neighbors objected to their moving in there because they were afraid it would bring more drug addicts and homeless people into the area, and they were right. To enter the treatment, it cost $1,000, and you had to quit your drug addiction cold turkey upon entering and share in the chores and labor around the giant new building. Their schedules consisted of seven six-hour days of motion, which meant work, and then seven days of growth, which meant you could do whatever you wanted, all the while being constantly subjected to the game. The compound offered classes in art, drama, public speaking, and music to keep the patients occupied, and if you were slacking off on your duties, you were called out on 
on it by your peers in the game and shamed into keeping up your part. You're not growing. Hey, that's not enough motion. Why are you growing? <laughs> You're motioning during growth period. <laughs> so there were communal bathrooms, not much privacy at yeah. all. Anybody could listen in on any phone calls they wanted that someone was making <laughs> on special radios. And there was also The Wire. They got it early. They got it early, yeah. You gotta watch it. It's the best TV show of all time. So it was The Wire, which was an in-house radio network that was broadcasting 24-7 on loudspeakers inside the building, preaching the ideas of Diedrich and keeping everybody on the right track. And all of this was a sensation. In 1964, they had 500 residents, and by 1969, they had 1,400. In the 10 years that they had existed, some six to 10,000 addicts had passed through. The House of Representatives called it the miracle on the beach. Courts would send addicts to go live here for treatment. Okay. They also had a lot of support from celebrities. They had guest speakers like Rod Serling, oh, wow. Ray Bradbury, Steve Allen, Charlton Heston, more than your two cents, Milton Berle. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy and Robert Wagner came in to play the game with patience. Oh my God, imagine being yelled at by Leonard by, Nimoy. <laughs> I thought you were emotionless. <laughs> Timothy Leary and Cesar Chavez were supporters of it. Philip K. Dick went there to get clean and then based the rehab in uh, Scanner Darkly on them. There was a movie called Synanon in 1965 made by Columbia that had Chuck Connors and Richard Conti in it. Richard Conti sounds familiar. The Godfather. He plays the cat that Marlon Brando pets. <laughs> Diedrich was also known for the great parties he threw there because since he was dealing with dope addicts, a lot of his patients were jazz players. Okay. So he always had great music at these parties. There was even a Sound of Synanon album recorded by patients that they released to promote the program and the Synanon combo played on Steve Allen's Jazz Scene USA. One of these jazz musicians was a Mr. Art Pepper really, who came in 1969 to try to get clean and was okay with the strange conditions inside the compound because as he said, dope fiends and nuts can't stand routine and when they get bored they have to do something crazy so Synanon made the insanity themselves. The people that ran it caused the insanity. But how successful was Diedrich's program in reality? It seemed to be so successful that other places around the country adopted his methods including the Terminal Island Prison. He claimed that recovery rates were between 80 to 100% cured. This wasn't true at all. People would spend an average of about two years in Synanon and then they graduated and were then referred to as the Walking Dead. And that's how it started. And then Rick Grimes came in and cleaned it all up. What a cool guy. A cool guy. My method, I hit him in the head. (laughs) Really hard. In reality, almost all of his patients went back to using after they left the Synanon compound. So in 1968, Diedrich saw an obvious solution to this. Nobody graduates anymore. You don't leave. Oh, okay. You, you see the progression. Yeah. Like, year by year, it gets more and more into a cult. And it's so slow it, to exactly, follow the logic exactly. that, that it would slip into being a cult without seeing If you're you into it, you don't until, even realize. Until you are so far into it. Like, yeah. oh, now I can't leave because yeah. I shaved my head. So when you joined Synanon, you were now in it for life. And together, you would build a new drug-free utopia with Diedrich as your leader. Around this time, Diedrich wanted more money brought into the enterprise. He wouldn't accept government grants because then they'd have to be evaluated for how successful his treatments were and the results would not be good. So he decided to open up the doors to people who weren't addicted to anything and simply wanted to join just because they liked the lifestyle. Synanon had become very popular with young people as a way to examine your life and come to terms with who you were. This allowed for more residents, which meant more money coming in. These people who weren't addicted, they were referred to as squares and they had to give all their possessions to Synanon when they joined. They also started doing lifestylers who were squares that were allowed to be a part of Synanon but lived and worked outside and had to give all the money they made to Synanon but that didn't last long because most of them ended up not being you know 
you can't have it both ways. So yeah. they would just sort of leave and they became known as splitties. Since these new squares might be harder to control than a recovering drug addict, Diedrich came up with a new, even more extreme version of the game oh that appealed to the drug culture at the time and promised to open up your mind without acid. This was called The Trip. So it would start on a Friday with a group of like 50 new Sinonites who were led through candlelit, incense-filled hallways through their compound to a big room lined with army cots. So each person had a cot and a set of white robes for them to wear and their watches were taken from them so they wouldn't know how much time had passed. Oh, but they yeah. were so excited to be part of Synanon they didn't care and then the game would begin and their guides would kill all of their enthusiasm and yell at all of them and turn them against each other until they were all depressed and ashamed of who they were. Yeah. These guides had done research on each of the people in the group to get personal information and then used that to bring up every bad thing they had ever oh done and everything they felt was wrong with themselves. They knew how to get to you. Oh. Diedrich sometimes told them, maybe one day we will just put dingbats like you against the wall and wash them off and bring them back into the human race. And he's the guy <laughs> and to people do liked it. this. <laughs> the new recruits were deprived of sleep and were subjected to the witching hour. Which is that what we're going through right now? This is hour 48 of this <laughs> recording. I can't let Greg leave until he breaks. So the witching hour, they had two witches dressed in black and white robes using a Ouija board that would spell out Emerson quotes from self-reliance and would tell them that they had to accept Synanon or they'd go to the fifth circle of hell. Wow. Which so, one's the fifth circle? It's for vegetarians. <laughs> Some people started hallucinating. They were told they were there because they were resistors to the Synanon truth and were yelled at until they would break down and cry and then turn on the other recruits who hadn't broken down and yell at them until they did. Once everyone was beaten into a bloody mental pulp, they were rebuilt with the Synanon ideals. Then come Monday morning, they were marched out of that room to band music into a ballroom filmed with a cheering crowd of their new Sinanite brethren where everybody did a special dance called the Hoopala. Yep. You're a Sinanite wow, now. you just do a mashed potato time yeah. and you're a Sinanite? <laughs> hey, I know I told you that you're a disappointment to your dad, but how'd you like to do the Watusi with me? <laughs> but with all these new non-addicts coming in, it made the real addicts uncomfortable just like their arrival had made the alcoholics uncomfortable. Yeah. And just like happened to them, they were slowly edged out until mm. Sinanon became more a way of life than an addiction recovery program. And by 1972, there were 1,700 of them. And this became a period of huge growth. Starting in the mid-60s, they started operating Synanon businesses run by the Synanites. They would run gas stations, manage apartment buildings, and auto repair business. They sold pottery, pens, shirts, wallets. They were all branded with Synanon. They became the second largest firm in the United States. And in 1968, they were taking in about $1.2 million a year. By 1976, it was $8.7 and was either getting donations from or doing business with over 20,000 businesses and organizations. One out of every five company on the Fortune 500 list was involved with oh Synanon. Oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. By the end, they were worth close to 50 million and had opened a private corporation in Lake Havasu. Essentially, they laundered all their money there. Oh. That wasn't to mention that they were still getting new members who had to pay monthly dues of $450 for an individual, $750 for a couple, and $440 for a child. With all this new money, Diedrich started buying up property. He opened up chapters in Oakland, Detroit, Germany, and Malaysia. Wow. The city of San Francisco donated an entire block-long building to them. Then he started to build an 
entire Sinanon city of 3,300 acres in Tamales Bay, becoming the largest private property owner in Marin County. Then he bought over 2,000 acres in Badger, where he built Sinanon buildings, a trash dump, and an airstrip. This is like so big. Also, he built a luxury home for himself called The Home Place, where he eventually moved. You're running a weird name. <laughs> it's called The Goobly Blop. I'm waiting for one of my uh, followers to say something wrong. I'm going to name my place that. Drink all this and then try to say my house. <laughs> Mickey Mouse. So he eventually moved there so he didn't have to be around ex-dope fiends, as he put it. Oh, boy. But with all this income and lavish spending, the IRS started to get suspicious of whether or, fiends. or whether or not this was actually a non-profit organization, which it wasn't. And there was talk of revoking their tax-exempt status. So in 1974, Diedrich came up with the perfect solution. Synanon was no longer a drug treatment center. It was now the Church of Synanon. And a memo among the Synanites asked, who will be God? I'll give you 1,700 guesses. <laughs> this is when all bets were off. The charade yeah. was over. No more pretending. Synanon was a cult and subject to the impulses of their new God, Diedrich. No. When Diedrich had to go on a diet, all the followers had to go on oh a diet. He, when he had to start running in place to lose weight, everyone had to run in place to he lose weight. He didn't want enablers. He took up whittling, so did everyone else. When he quit smoking, nobody else was allowed to smoke. That did not go over well. 150 people were kicked out for not quitting. And if you were kicked out of Synanon, you were not welcome back. If you left or were kicked out, you were never spoken of again. He decided all women had to have four earrings and all men had to have one. In the mid-70s, he decided that all men and women had to shave their heads, so they did. This happened to be just the look George Lucas was looking for when he was making THX 1138, so wow. most of the extras in that movies were members of Synanon. Wow, really? He did glut raids, where he would randomly enter people's rooms and take away excessive personal possessions. He experimented with the 24-hour day, where half the people worked during the day, and half the people worked during the night. Uh -huh. Whatever idea came into his head, he'd try it out. They yeah. referred to their little terms and phrases as synonese, mm -hmm. and he lobbied to have a synonon embassy in Washington, D.C. No. as part of his plan to form a separate country of synonon. Oh, One thing Diedrich was big on was racial integration, and to set an example to the rest of his followers, he married an African-American former heroin addict and ex-prostitute named Betty, and he encouraged all his followers to find partners outside of their own races. You did, however, have to get permission from an elder to date somebody. He and Betty would sit in thrones wearing robes but in 1977 so humble. <laughs> in 1977 Betty died of lung cancer oh. so he announced that he was accepting applications for a new wife. Oh my God. Six people applied but losing Betty had been so painful to him that he decided nobody should have to feel that pain so he declared that every couple living there had to break up <laughs> and get together with new Synanon picked love matches and every three years you had to break up again and get rematched with someone oh, in mass yeah. weddings so you couldn't get too attached. It's like speed dating but really sad. <laughs> but longer. But longer and really sad. But you can't have an ever rotating cast of spouses without having some kids along the way. Children born in Synanon were dealt with in typical cult fashion. When a woman was seven months pregnant she had to move into a separate area called the hatchery and had to stay there until the baby was six months months old so as to remove the father from some unpleasant aspects like getting up for the two o'clock feeding i don't get a dad so neither should you <laughs> just keep rotating everybody yeah. everybody's dad nobody's dad my dad's gonna he's rotating he'll be back yeah soon. he'll be back soon after this the kids were taken from their mothers and raised communally and could only be seen by their parents once a week and mothers who wanted to see their kids more were referred to as head suckers the children alternated between three weeks of school and then three weeks of apprenticeship in specific trades when these kids were put to national 
achievement tests, they actually scored above average. Wow. So, hey, it's working. Let's do that more often. However, in 1972, Diedrich decided none of the children should live in the Santa Monica compound and that they should all be kept in the Marin County compound. So this prompted some 200 to 300 people to leave Synanon in protest to separate it from their kids. But yeah. the kids that remained were sent up there and were made to start playing the game at age four. Oh, man. Imagine yelling at a four. You're boring. <laughs> I feel like most interactions with children are like the game anyways. Yeah. Naturals. Kids ran away all the time to neighbors, but the local sheriff, Dave Mitchell, had been elected with Synanon support. So the reports of child abuse were ignored and the kids were returned to Synanon oh to continue God, to be imagine. abused. In 1977, Diedrich got tired of having kids around and decided they were a waste of money. So he decided no more children will be born in cinema in cinema in Cinnabon. <laughs> he said of childbirth, I understand it's more like crapping a football than anything else. And he can argue with the man that's smart and humble. He said crapping that nothing is sacred just because it's been done for a million years and not just not having kids all men were required to get vasectomies and the four women who were pregnant when he decided this were forced to get abortions so this prompted even more people to leave the church Diedrich however never got a vasectomy he said I am not bound by the rules I make them. When some people started wondering when they could graduate from Synanon, he said nobody graduates from a religion. He knew how people saw him and he responded, I am considered a megalomaniac nut. Of course, this is true, but I'm not so crazy. <laughs> but aside from harsh words and the forced birth control, Synanon was still a harmless organization bound by the rules of no violence or threats of violence. Okay. Until 1973. Oh, my. You know the Manson family who did that thing about five years ago? I got an idea. They were playing the game, and Diedrich was talking, and a woman kept interrupting him, and he got so annoyed with her that he dumped a can of root beer on her head. Aww. And this was a direct violation of the no violence rule. Yeah. Everybody was shocked, and he immediately apologized. But then just as quickly, he said, I'm not sorry. And he justified himself saying, I gave the woman a lesson in manners. And that was the beginning of the culture of violence oh inside of Sinner. On. Pretty soon, courts started sending juvenile criminals to Synanon as a sort of scared straight sort of thing. Yeah. But these punk squads, as they were referred to, wouldn't bend to the verbal abuses of the game, so they started to physically beat the kids oh, to wow. straighten them out. It sounds horrible, but this is a method of dealing with juvenile delinquents that many other institutions started to adopt also, and I that think is. probably still use. Then the violence started being used on people within the organization that they suspected of stealing or of being spies or just general enemies of Synanon. On. Right. People who they kicked out of the church were sometimes thrown out of windows oh. and sometimes thrown off of roofs. Diedrich was done messing around and he started seeing his church as the future of society. He said, this is the kind of revolution that moved the world from Judaism to Catholicism to Protestantism to Synanism, uh, to Cinnabon. <laughs> Cinnabonism. He was ready to launch what he referred to as a holy war. Oh, no. And to launch a war, he needed an army. What, but where would I find? Oh. He started training some of his followers in the deep flats in the Badger Mountains near his home compound. They were trained in a made-up form of martial arts that he called Sindo. And in no. case that failed, he bought them $200,000 worth of guns and ammunition from a single gun store. He also got cars, trucks, hundreds of motorcycles, 21 boats, and 10 airplanes. But first rely on Sindo. Try the judo topping. 
the judo topping. It's delicious. <laughs> it's On your Cinnabon. <laughs> this army was called the Imperial Marines, and they were led by a man named Dr. Douglas Robson. The Marines patrolled their compounds in Santa Monica. It was believed that trespassers on their property were taken into the basement and beaten under Dr. Robson's commands, most of whom were just dumb teenagers. Yeah. They also went after ex-members and enemies. Oh my God, they went after ex-members? Yeah. One such enemy was a guy who cut off Dr. Robson driving down the road up in Badger. Later on the day while playing the game, Diedrich shamed Robson for not attacking the guy who had disrespected him. So Robson took a troop of Marines, tracked down the car that had cut him off, went to the guy's house, held his family at gunpoint, and then pistol whipped him while his family watched. Wow. Also up in Badger, a neighbor named Alvin Gambanini was helping smuggle out kids who wanted to run away from yeah. Synanon. Once they found out about this, they sent the Marines after him and they beat him up in front of his family. On March 20th, 1978, a former Synanite named Tom Cardino was on his honeymoon and took his wife to that Synanon area to show him where he used to live. When they saw that he was there, they tied him up to a post and beat him in front of his <sighs> new wife. On September 21st, 1978, another ex-member named Phil Ritter tried to go back and get his kids out of the church. They clubbed him over the head and put him into a coma for a week. Another former member named Jack Hurst had spoken out publicly against Synanon only to come home one day to find his dog hanged oh. in front of his house. Another young woman named Rosalina Cole disappeared from one of their compounds and has still never been found. Wow. In all, they attacked about 40 people all over the country in these carums, which is what they would call missions. And if one of the soldiers were caught during one of them, they were trained to go to jail and say nothing ever of their involvement oh. with Synanon. The other group of people they went after were their critics in the media. In the 70s, Synanon was getting a lot of bad press. An LA Times reporter named Narda Zucchino went after them pretty hard. Connie Chung was on the news denouncing them. Unfortunately, Synanon had an in-house legal team made up of 48 members and they managed to win a lawsuit in 1972 against the San Francisco Examiner for defamation and won $2.6 million. Oof. One newspaper that escaped their wrath was the Point Reyes Light, which was a weekly paper in Marin County that had 1,700 subscribers. They reported constantly on how bad Synanon was, but since they were so small, they didn't pay any attention to yeah. them. Who did pay attention to them was the Pulitzer Prize Committee, who gave them the Pulitzer for Public Service in 1979 for their coverage of the story. Then Synanon made a misstep and sued ABC and Time Magazine. This gave journalists access to the Synanon records, Oof. and the documents of their violence were now out in the open. When NBC did an expose on them in 1978, the station received hundreds of letters from Synanites threatening them with physical harm. A representative from Synanon then went on CBS News and said while the cameras were rolling that bombs would go off in the homes of their critics. Then some of the members bought stock in ABC just so they could go to a stockholders meeting where they then identified themselves as former members of Murder Incorporated <laughs> and asked the ABC board if they had protection for their wives. But okay. the biggest bee in their bonnet was an LA lawyer named Paul Morantz. His attention was first brought to Synanon because a woman who was having a pre-psychotic break checked herself into Synanon and then when her husband found out where she was he went to get her out but they said that they had already sent her to their facility in Tomales Bay and that he couldn't have her. Nobody was helping this man get his wife back so Morant stepped in. In 1977 he alerted the health department that Synanon was treating people without having any license to be able to do so but like I said Synanon was pretty much immune to 
minor problems yeah. like that. In March 1978, Moran released a report on the atrocities that Sinanon was committing, but the authorities ignored it, and the Sinanon lawyers silenced him for libel. But that didn't stop him. In the summer of 1978, he lobbied at the request of Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein against a bill proposed by a California congressman named Herschel Rosenthal, who was a Sinanon supporter to protect Sinanon even more from health licensing laws. Morantz's effort got the bill defeated by one vote. Wow. In June 1978, a woman in Sinanon died and her husband ran away to escape, but their three kids were left behind. So the grandma enlisted Morantz, who was able to get a court order to get these three kids out of there. Sinanon refused to turn over the kids oh and the building had to be surrounded by police with guns before they finally gave them up. <sighs> Could have been Waco so easy. Yep. He also managed to win a $300,000 judgment against them and Diedrich had had enough with Morantz. Mm-hmm. That was the last straw. While Morantz was launching investigations against the church, Diedrich would take to the wire radio station they had and would demonize Morant. He talked about him so much that when people managed to get out of Sinanon, they'd often go to him because they knew an enemy of their enemy was their ally. (laughs) So he got even more stories about the abuse that was going on there. Then by carelessness of one of the investigators in October 1978, Morant's address was put on a memo that was given to the Sinanon legal department. They immediately gave that information to Diedrich, who then read it over the wire and asked who among them would have the guts to do something about oh, it. No. So he wanted Morant's dead, but he didn't want to pay a hitman to do it when he felt confident enough in his Imperial Marines. Yeah. So Morant's got tipped off by one of his contacts that they had his address. So he went straight to LAPD to beg for protection from Sinanon. While he was gone, three Marines went to his house in the Pacific Palisades and put a four foot long de-rattled rattlesnake into his mailbox. Oh my so when he got God. home, he checked his mail and saw what he thought was a package in the mailbox. He reached in, snake bit him. He survived, but he was in the hospital for 11 days. The Marines had also left a Sinanon business card at Morantz's mom's neighbor's house to let him know that they knew where his mom also lived. And thus was born the Hollywood trope of death by poisonous animal. It was beyond obvious who did this to Morantz, but there was no proof. Now, remember how they had tried to set up an embassy in Washington, D.C.? Shortly after the Morantz thing, their fake embassy started using their intimidation tactics in Washington, D.C., which does not fly there and the local no. media started investigating them pretty hard. This led to Diedrich attacking one of the reporters and then fleeing to Italy to avoid <laughs> assault charges. However, he didn't leave for long because he wanted his deposit back on the building ah! in D.C. So they wouldn't give it to him so he sued them which for legal reasons I won't even pretend to understand allowed the courts in D.C. to get access to the wire radio network which kept recordings of everything that was ever said on it. Yeah. So the tapes the authorities were given were heavily edited but it was still enough. They were recordings of the threats of violence. There were recordings of people being beaten that they had played as a warning to others. They also found the recordings of what Diedrich had said about Morantz leading up to the snake attack, which was, don't mess with Sinanon. You can get killed dead, physically dead. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off try me. This is only a sample you son of a bitch. I really do want an ear in a glass of alcohol on my desk. Oh, okay. So Jonestown had just happened a few days before they heard all this. Yeah. So, so the authorities they realized either, yeah. that we, this isn't happening again. Yeah. So police were sent out to search the various compounds and an arrest warrant was out for Diedrich and the guys who had placed the snake. They finally found Diedrich in a house in Lake Havasu on December 2nd and he was 
drunk, which is weird for a recovered alcoholic yeah, who started a cult to reform addicts. <laughs> it turns out he had started drinking again after Betty died, and he even allowed the other Sinonites to drink as well. The guys who had planted the snake were sent to jail. One of them was the son of band leader Stan Kenton, but oh, wow. Diedrich just got five years of probation and a $5,000 fine. However, he was forced to step down as chairman of Sinanon and could no longer be involved with the church and religion that he had created. On top of that, Sinanon was essentially categorized as a terrorist organization, which made future cases easier easier to win, of which there were several. The church tried to get back to its original nonviolent roots after Diedrich left, but they were still making huge profits, which was something brought to the public's knowledge by Forbes magazine, and that led to the big companies that supported them, like IBM and Heinz, to sever ties, and that's when the money problems hit. Then the IRS came asking for the taxes that they owed them from having an illegitimate tax-exempt status, and in May 1982, they finally lost that status thanks to the same judge from the Watergate case, Wow! and the money started bleeding leading out until 1991 then when they finally ran out of funds and synonym was closed for good. Their Santa Monica compound turned into the Casa del Mar Hotel, and in 1997, Charles Diedrich died in Vesalia, and if it turns out he was right all along, and he was God, then I'll finally have the last laugh for that vasectomy I gave (laughs) myself while I was researching this story. (laughs) To think that something was so big, and I'd never heard of it before. I know, me too. I never knew about this. Yeah, that is so massive, and it's so LA, too. Just the depths that it kept going to. Yeah. It was great. (laughs) It was a great time. It was a great trip. The game sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds so horrible, but at the same time, I kind of feel like I need someone to yell at me. I need to be broken down. I also could use a haircut and vasectomy. (laughs) Haircut and a vasectomy. Two bits. Those are just for the cults. There's plenty more. We'll probably do another cult episode. A lot of kooky characters in Los Angeles. A lot of people. They're all together ooky. This flies <laughs> everywhere. A rich history of cults. Rich history of cults. Who would think that you can move to Los Angeles, California and aim to get really famous for nothing and then end up building a following? Well, I would love to have a following. <laughs> I would love for everyone to agree that I'm great and maybe <laughs> godlike. So if you think we are godlike, uh, leave a five-star rating on iTunes for us. Uh, if you have an iPhone, open your podcast app. We're right there. Look yeah. really meekly. Easy to do. Leave some stars, maybe some words, kind words. Kind, kind of words. Kind, kind of. Two sentences. You can follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. Instagram, Ram LA underscore Meekly. You could find us on Facebook under LA Meekly. We have a Tumblr page. LA Meekly.tumblr.com. Yeah. You can email us, la.meekly at gmail.com is, yeah. if you have any suggestions, comments. Uh, why are these episodes so long now? I thought you guys were brief before. I <laughs> thought you, you were a succinct podcast, but I guess you just want to riff and make references to Adam's family all day. <laughs> oh, is that what we were doing? I thought it was killing flies yeah if you have uh, field trip recommendations yes. if you work at an interesting or historic Very place interested. in the city yeah. uh, let us know we have a live show uh, oh yeah we, you don't know about this yet maybe a live show coming up October 30th Devil's at the night. end of this night at the end of this stop saying words at the end of this month at the Comedy Central stage yet again at 8 o'clock October 30th we'd love to see you there you have to reserve tickets it's free yeah. but you do have to reserve tickets because it'll fill up just like last time yeah we're gonna be doing our haunted episode there live so that'll be fun a nice little treat right before uh, Halloween the big night yeah. the big one the big one you'll see more ads about that yeah. coming up we also have a Patreon set up That's now right. It's uh, launching or launched. Yeah. Patreon.com slash LA Meekly. Be our Patreon saint. We don't have any really goodies yet 
We uh, will if, though in the yeah, future. Yeah, but if you want to, just everybody want to donate a dollar, we would, or whatever you whatever you want, it more. would it would help us more. Yeah, it would help us out a lot. Everybody wants this to going. just give us two cents. You know, we would really appreciate that. <laughs> Here's your two cents. Here's your two cents. But I hope they're like those really rare pennies that are worth a thousand dollars each. <laughs> yeah, it'll keep us. Uh, you know, cover the fees for updating our equipment, paying to host the podcast online, and we want to try to get a website going. So if you you know, money yeah. helps. Yeah, and we also want to try to greed is good. Yeah, and we also want to try to get some merchandise too which we will need some money for so you know if any little thing you have helps it takes money to make money and you have money i like that after three hours of talking about cults that monetized all their uh, beliefs that we're here like but we just need a little bit of money (laughs) those monsters not us though uh any last words no great yeah (laughs) my last words were uh, i meant to do that (laughs) oh it's gonna be two hours long I meant to do that. I meant to. Yeah, so thanks for listening. Hey, have a good October. Yeah, have a nice um, Halloween. I hope we see you around some movies or some events or wherever we end up. Uh, I hope to see yeah, somebody. Yeah, I hope there's one event, October 30th, our event. We would love to see you there. Shake uh, your head. Shake your head. Remember. Get a vasectomy. Vasectomy. Get a vasectomy. Join Cinnabon. So yeah, we'll see you uh, on All Hallows Eve Eve, Devil's Night, as it were. Yeah. And uh, we love you, and we love you, and we love you. Don't Ooh. talk about us. We love I, you. Don't tell people who don't listen to us about us. Actually, oh no. Scratch that, reverse it. The snozberries do taste like snozberries. <laughs> uh, and gold poisoning. <laughs> so that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, not breaking the lease on our 144-person apartment since 2013. Ay-ya. Ay-ya. Ay-ya.